Welcome to another episode of Script Me Manuscript. I'm your co-host Joe, along with my co-host Terry. Terry, how you doing tonight? I'm doing okay. All right. We got a good show planned tonight. You want to tell everybody what we're going to be talking about? Well, they can probably guess. <laughs> if they're watching, they can probably guess. If they're listening and not seeing, then uh, we got we got a good one tonight. We got a timely one. We're doing Dune. Doing Dune. Uh, long-awaited film. Yeah. Uh, lots lot, of, and a lot in more ways than one. In more ways. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get into we'll get into previous iterations. I'm sure. Sure. Yeah. I have a plan to. But this one's been long, long awaited, long mm-hmm. expected, and really excited to get into it with you tonight. So. Yeah, and we've got, of course, we got to do our preliminaries. Yeah, absolutely. So, I think you've got, uh, got a couple things, a couple of things lined up for us. So I'll, I'll let All you right. take it away. All right. Uh, okay. First thing. First things first. Always the questions we've got to start with. What are you reading? What are you watching right now, dude? I I got to tell you, I'm I'm pretty excited. So um, first of all. I got to read Dune. This yeah. is my first time reading Dune. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in preparation for the podcast. Um, so read that. Um, but then also uh, just got the third installment of N.D. Wilson's uh, sort of, I don't even know if to call it a fantasy series or uh, American mythic series, Ashtown Burials. Mm-hmm. So I got book three, which just put in my hands this morning. Okay. And so. Uh, hard copy or you, uh, is it the digital thing? This is, is the hard, this okay. is a hard copy. Yeah. Nick Duncan put that in my hands this morning. So. Really excited to to get back into that world. Um, he's so good at at you know getting people excited about American figures in history, American yeah. myth. He's really good at that. So um, really excited to jump back into that. And as far as what I'm watching, um, I don't know. Jeff Wright's not here to criticize my lack of knowledge on horror. So uh, you know he'll he'll have to church discipline me later. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know. I don't know if it's horror thriller um, or what, but. Uh, the wife and I just started watching Midnight Mass. Okay. So, Did you have you listened to the pop culture quorum day? On I have Midnight not. Mass? I've, I've been able to yeah. uh, sort of steer clear of spoilers so far. Okay. Yeah. Although uh, Mrs. Wright this this morning at school almost she she spoiled a few things for me un- unintentionally. Oh so yeah. We'll have to forgive her for that. But. Well, that's uh you know we might end up kind of backdoor coming back around to to Midnight Mass because one of the things on our list at some point I mean it could be like next Halloween or something but. Is uh, the haunting of Hill House? Sure, which was done by the same right. filmmaker. That's right. Um, Netflix had a, had another limited run, um, and it was hailed as pretty much a masterpiece. It was um, great. Yeah, uh, it was really and great. Uh, and the book is also considered a horror classic. Oh, and okay. I, I think both that bears an analysis. Because yeah, because there that's a that's a wild um, the whole thing. Just the book itself. Multiple attempts to make it into a movie, very various degrees of success, and so that one's probably going to be worth worth looking into. Yeah, not, just, not a very long one. Shirley Jackson wrote the original story, and gotcha. Um, she's kind of a a, a short story um, expert. expert. Um, that's a novel. I think it reaches the length of a novel. It's certainly not a short story, but anyway. Well, I actually that. that's news to me. I didn't even realize it was a book first. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. that's excellent news because I mean you're not missing a lot because I mean to, to spoil what will probably be a podcast later on the source material and the and the Flanagan version are like not very different. Yeah, there's a house that's haunted and the, some of the names are the same and that's about that's it. That's about it. Yeah. Well, Flanagan, I, I'm happy to say that he's good at yeah. what he does, and mm-hmm. I've been really pleased with the very short foray that I've had into his work. Um, and I really I, like the format of a a series with a defined beginning and end. Yeah. Telling a complete story. Yeah. Finishing, moving on. Moving on to the next thing. And yeah. don't just be like, oh, let's spin out several more seasons sure. until people lose interest sure. and just like we don't, nobody knows where it's going or what's going to, you know. So they. He's a storyteller. Yeah. Right. They had a story in mind. They told it with eight or ten episodes or whatever it's on. 
and I'm a I'm a fan of that idea. I so am too. I hope that they continue to do a good job with those things. Agreed. So I haven't watched Midnight Mass. I'm going to be honest though; it didn't appeal to me when I saw it. I was like, oh no. It's it's taken uh, my wife a little a little bit to get into, mm. uh, but she has started to. We're at the end. We just finished the second episode, and I think you know, there's been enough there. Now mm-hmm. I think she's starting to get to get intrigued. I'm, I'm really intrigued with. Uh, um, you know, it's sort of a sort of a giveaway with the with the title, but the there's a there's a father, you know, a Catholic, yeah, a religious a Catholic element, priest yeah. uh, that that is introduced, and he's sort of he's the intrigue, right? That's sort of okay. where the mystery lies, mm-hmm. and it's got me, it's got me hooked. So okay. I'm, I'm excited to I'm excited to get into it. But enough about what I'm reading, sure. what I'm watching. What are you reading? What are you watching? I'm still working on Hemingway. I'm still working on uh, Farewell to Arms. Yes. So I've been chiseling away at that one. I haven't made a ton of progress, but. Yeah. Um, I'm well over halfway, so I'm going to try to just knock it out. I'm tempted next, though, to turn to Dune Messiah. Yeah. I'm deciding, because I've got two things I want to read. One of them is a, one of them is On War by Carl von Clausewitz, which okay. is like a classic kind of old nonfiction about military strategy from like Napoleon era. He sure. wrote slightly before that, but it's that, that era. Sure. Um, and I've just kind of always been interested in it. I have a copy of it, and... Um, but like having been in the Dune universe kind of mentally for a little while, I'm like, I've never read any of the sequels. I've only read the one. And gotcha. I've read the first, I've read Dune three times. And, uh, you know. And just to be clear, when you say Dune, you mean all three parts. You mean Dune, Mod Dib, and. Yeah, um, yeah. The third part is escaping me now. Yeah. Um, but yeah. The, the complete the first complete book. The complete first yeah. book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. I, I actually have only just read Dune. The first part, oh, so like okay. part one that is right. Dune, and then a, a little bit into. I was that was going to be. I was going to have to bring dude. that up. Are we going to get into spoilers for? Because if you are not, if you haven't read the book, you've seen the movie now. You're familiar with the story up to. I'm familiar with the story up to probably where the about movie a third, ends. maybe a little more than a third. Right. Um. I don't know if the. I think the plan might be to make it two movies yeah. rather than three. It sounds like the right plan. Um. Yeah. They but, maybe pushing pushing it a little too much if they try to to do each. Part I'm sure, but anyway, we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves. We are. You watch anything um, good? No, <laughs> no, <laughs> um, no. I, I, uh, stuff that I watch. I don't. I don't watch a lot of television. Um, I would say I watch more movies. Uh, recently, okay, here's one I recently saw. Um, B horror film called Death Ship. Okay. Um, you know, this is like right around Halloween. Sure. And I was kind of in the mood. But I wasn't in the mood to be scared, so I was like, "I'll watch a, I'll watch a movie with good spooky ambiance." That's not like, you know, a James Wan like, right. you know, stuff monsters jumping out everywhere, or like right. the Conjuring universe or whatever. So I found this. It was on Amazon Prime, and I was like, oh, I'm just gonna watch this. It looks kind of, you know, fine. Sure. And it was fine. And it was fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was. It was not great. Um, it, it. There was a lot of missed opportunities there. Um, the premise is basically a cruise ship, small one, very small, like almost like a pleasure yacht. Um, look like maybe 200 people on board or something sure. like that. They're going around doing their thing. The captain's a huge jerk. And it's they introduce the cast of characters, about nine or ten of them. And then a, a freighter of unknown origin that appears to be a ghost ship crashes into theirs, sinks their ship, kills everyone except for a handful that make it into a lifeboat, which are the characters that they've introduced previously. They make it onto this ship, and then they begin succumbing to weird... Uh, stuff like one guy gets knocked overboard like that it's just there's all kinds of things happening that are unexplained the ship appears to be manipulated by forces that they can't locate 
it seems like there's someone else on board, but they can't find anyone. And uh, it turns out that it's a old Nazi uh, freighter from World War II. That movie came out in the early 80s. Gotcha. So this would have been a time when, like, I think that they actually filmed it on a real Nazi freighter oh, that wow. they just, like, pulled out of a derelict junkyard or whatever. Sure. Um, but uh, it, it was probably just a cargo or whatever. But they were like, oh, no, it was a torture. Like They would put concentration camp victims on there and torture them. The ship has some sort of malignant entity that drives it, and it runs on death, like it's powered by death. So it has to find people and kill, like it has to bring them on, like trick them on coming on board. Yeah. And if it doesn't, then it sort of runs out of power. And gotcha. Um, so it could have been fun. It was a real. I liked the premise a lot. It was a neat yeah, premise, but they sure. it just wasn't. It wasn't great. Okay. George Kennedy was the like villain. Oh okay. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so interesting. Yeah. So you know, nothing says Halloween hey, horror like George Kennedy. Have you watched The West Wing yet? I've seen some of it. I haven't watched the complete Come on, man. I need you to do me a solid here. Where is it? Where we, can I find that right uh, now? It's on uh you know Without what? buying it. It's on HBO Max. That's um, what you need. Well I might have to just I gave you my log. visit. I gave you my You can't log. say that on the air. Oh, okay. We'll, we'll edit that part out. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, HBO's gonna send goons to your house. <laughs> Watch out. Uh, send them to Nick Duncan. At- <laughs> <laughs> no, I... Uh, seriously, it's, it's a good show. You should watch yeah, it. Yeah, I know. I mean, I, I believe you. We got it. We and, got it. Um, I've been intrigued by it before. Um, political... Little political drama. Political dramas can be interesting. I'm I follow politics in real life, though. So Yeah, Sorkin's got a little... Sorkin's got crazy. I mean, yeah. I guess he's probably always a little crazy. Uh, but I know he's gotten really crazy. Well, how old days. is that show now? 15 uh, years? Yeah, it's 20 old. years maybe? Yeah, late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah, so... I mean, it's uh, probably two decades. I mean, that was there was a lot more sanity yeah. um, then. Yeah, it's actually really funny in the show. The politicians will do a thing and they'll be like, you can't say that. And I'll be watching it and be like, man, that is so tame compared to yeah. what we're seeing mm-hmm. in real life right now. So yeah. it is interesting to see how... Yeah, it might be fun just for that reason. Just for that reason yeah. alone, it's Like fun. to go see like, oh, this is what they... They used to think yeah. this was edgy, and mm-hmm. now it's like not. So. Yeah, it's very... Tame. Vulgar, perhaps. It's it's so common, I guess. Yeah. Right, it's just become so base. Yeah. Uh, well, should it have been a Booker movie? I hear you got a good one for I have one, yeah. Um, So this is a sci-fi short story, and it's a long short story. Um, Okay. In fact, I'm not sure. It might might surpass. It might be a novelette. There's rules for that. I don't remember what they are, but it's probably close. It's about 40 or 50 pages, probably. So it's it's, it's up there in word count. But it's by uh, Robert Heinlein, who's one of my favorite sci-fi writers. I find Heinlein's writing comforting because this is actually kind of a flaw, but I like it. It's almost like a... That's my Heinlein kind of thing where um, he basically has one voice that he writes with and it's like a grumpy old man. No matter who the character is, it's always that. And um, and I like that about his writing for some reason. Like, um, Is it like the comfort of a blanket? It's like an old had? friend. It's yeah. like when you open one of his books, you always kind of know what you're going to get, at least from the POV character. Sure. Um, and, and that's not to say that they're all the same, but they... The way they speak, their internal monologue, there's a lot of similarities. And I think that it's Heinlein's. Like, I think that's probably just him kind of superimposing himself on it. Anyway, this story is called Bias Bootstraps. And it is probably one of the most fun and thorough time travel paradox adventures oh, wow. that's ever been done that I can think of. There's a lot of time travel stuff in sci-fi because sure. it's kind of a fun idea to play with. There's always different rules. Like, you know, you have like your Terminator rules and you have right. your... 
time cop rules and like they can't be in the same place and terminators like you can go you can go back but you can't go forward again in time and uh, you know you have all these different sci-fi franchises and sure. ips kind of have established rules and that's important when you're doing something that's like an alien concept like that right audience has to know what what can and can't be done right and in this story it's a story of a college student who's struggling to write a paper um it's due you know imminently like that day the next day and he's working on it late at night he's interrupted by someone who gets into his room uh and he he thinks the person looks familiar but he can't quite place it turns out that the person has come through a hole in the wall that just appeared like a like a sci-fi wormhole type situation okay and he tries I'm to getting like Stargate them. vibes. Is that yeah? Right? No, no, um, no. It's a little, probably a little more uh, like a subdued than that. Oh, okay. Like the whole appears without him knowing. It's not like the big splash okay, effect like or big, anything. It's not like the big. Like okay. it doesn't annihilate everything. Sure, there. sure, sure. Although there is a part where it shows that if you if one part of something goes through but the other part doesn't, it will sever it. So oh, okay. like you have to watch out. So it you does have like don't a... trip. You know. Um, <laughs> okay. And it's a time, it's a time portal. And so turns out the person who comes, who, who came through it is him. So when you, when you are introduced to the character, it's the first time you see him. And then he interacts with himself and almost every character in it is him at different points. And throughout the story, he comes back to that time and you learn, okay. So when he came in the first time, he said, Hey, you've got to just trust me. You got to get up and go through this time portal. But then another one shows up and says, no, don't do it. Don't go through the time portal. And you follow his character and it's like you realize that what is happening, what is unfolding is inevitable because like you can't apparently you can't alter time in the high lines concept. Okay. But you get to see like what is developed between when we meet our character and when we meet this new version of him that has changed his mind about why is he doing this and not that. And, um, and it's, it's just a really great fun sure. adventure. Um, he eventually, uh, the the idea that the name comes by his bootstraps comes from where somebody lifts themselves up by their own efforts, like they they do that, and he makes it. He, he becomes in control of this time device and makes himself to become basically the dictator of the future. Um, and it's a the way that Heinlein writes a story. It's like, like a good thing. Um, oh, okay. That he's like he's being helpful because uh, when he go the future that he goes into, human beings are are sort of a subdued race that are like more like cows or sheep. Um, because they were, they were conquered by an alien entity that kind of kept them enslaved for millennia and bred all their like aggression and stuff out. So they, they needed guidance from like someone with more. I mean, a lot of honestly like toxic masculinity kind of stuff. Sure. Like it wasn't like he was like a goon or anything, but they needed someone who could teach them how to like strive for more, go out and conquer and take dominion. And um, yeah, and so it's a fun, it's a really fun story. So if we're gonna get this made to a movie, we got to keep it out of Hollywood. Is that well, what yeah? Well, somebody it's be some indie yeah, film. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the last time they tried to make a, a Heinlein story into a movie, we got Starship Troopers, and that that was a oh, disaster, sure. in my opinion. A lot of people like that movie, but I, I hate it because it's so different from what Heinlein had in mind. Right. So anyway, well, that sounds awesome, man. Yeah, and I, I, that sounds like the kind of movie I'd I'd like to watch. So. Yeah. Uh, what do you think? Do storytelling one one? Yeah, I think that's up next. Uh, okay. We got it. Um, so I had a, I had a good idea. This has come up a few times recently for me. Chekhov's gun. Yeah. What do you know about it? Well, th- I get to play the role of the of the ignorant fool now okay. because uh, <laughs> so I, I know Chekhov's gun in uh-huh. the sense that like I know heard it's of a that thing. Term. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard the term. My little brother is um, uh, just graduated from the University of Memphis with a, Memphis with a full ride. 
uh, tuition scholarship. And so a lot of theater. Mm-hmm. Um, was his major theater performing? It was, yeah, arts. performing arts. Yeah. yeah. Musical theater is his mm-hmm. degree, but he, you know, he's sort of dabbled in all this stuff. Yeah. And uh, when he comes home to visit, it's, you know, he, he, First of all, loves Chekhov and yeah. um, and loves to reference Chekhov. And I've actually never Chekhov. read any of Chekhov's. Well, so that's plays. the thing. Like, yeah. if he's going to be listening to this, like when we he's post gonna it, cut us, yeah. and <laughs> and when he hears this, he's going to murder me. But like, yeah. I've never actually read Chekhov either. Yeah, <laughs> so I've got a bunch in the bookstore. He's, he's got. I've got yeah. like fifteen different plays of yeah. his, and you know, he's gonna. And I like Russian literature. Sure, generally, oh, yeah. sure, like generally, I've read yeah. some Tolstoy and Dostoevsky yeah. and. Um, Solzhenitsyn, okay. um, which he's kind of a different thing, but like I like Russian literature. Yeah, me the too. The stuff that I've read. I'm sure there's bad ones, but it seems like I would be able to get on board. But yeah, just, yeah, like, I, accept it and just read the Chekhov play <laughs> at least one, maybe one of his more famous ones. It's definitely a blind spot in my uh, yeah in my literature yeah. background. So, all right, so Chekhov's gun is a concept. It's a theater, like a screenwriting type concept. It's sort of a rule that Chekhov came up with. It comes from, I cannot remember the name of his play um, that he got it from, but the idea is if you've got details in your plot, like a particular, like if it's a, if it's a, a part of your scenery, something like that, if it's, if it's something that's focused on that the, the audience's attention is going to be drawn to, it needs to serve a role in the play or the, or the screenplay. Um, and if it's not, then you need to remove it. It's just, mm. a, it's just superfluous fat, fat to be trimmed out. Yeah. Um, and so the idea is, you know, if you've got, if you've got, I mean, if you can imagine a stage play set up where it's fairly minimal or maybe it's, it's not even necessarily minimal. Maybe it's like a period piece, like you've got a murder mystery. So you've got a mansion setting and on the table prominently displayed as a revolver. And so, um, the the revolver should be used or it should be there should be a reason for it to be there because the audience is going to go it's unusual for a gun to just be laying there now if you you know there's exceptions to this rule clearly where it's like um, you go into a, an old mansion that has a, a literal gun room like where they keep their hunting rifles and stuff well it's just a room it doesn't necessarily mean that those guns will be used mm. but that's the con that's the idea. So if you've got um, if you've got something like that that's very prominently shown, it should have a purpose. Mm. A lot of people think that's a bad call. Hemingway actually notoriously didn't like it because he loves useless bits. Mm. Um, he thinks that it kind of colors the world and um, would throw stuff like that in. Um, so if you have, you know, in Chekhov's mind, if you've got a prominently displayed, let's take a. I'm tar- trying to think of an example of of something. A lot of times you would look at this and say set up and pay off. Where it's okay. like, okay, you've got a, uh, uh, okay, Empire Strikes Back. Sure. Right? So this is a movie that a lot of our listeners and viewers have probably seen. So in the Empire Strikes Back, it's established very early in the movie that there's a problem with the Millennium Falcon's engines that won't allow them to go to hyperdrive. They talk about fixing that early in the movie, first act, before like much is going on. There's an emergency situation where they have to flee in a right. hurry, and then they are trying to evade Imperial forces, and they're unable to go to light speed, right? Comes comes back in almost immediately. So they fly into the asteroid field and have a great action set piece, and that, that's helpful. It becomes an issue later because they, they go to Lando's place right. to fix that. That's sure. the reason for why they do that. Because if they didn't, they, they they are like, okay, what's close enough that we don't need light speed to get to? Sure. Oh, Bespin, Lando's place. We can go there. He has people that can fix it. 
They go there, they get ambushed. Everything kind of seems like it's falling apart. And the Empire disables their hyperdrive while they're there. We learn through through um, some expository dialogue between bad guys. And R2 figures this out by talking to the central computer of the city when nobody else was kind of paying attention. He's doing his R2 thing. And then he fixes it um, while they're on the run. And so that whole like, oh, the hyperdrive is not working is a constant problem for them that right. they have to constantly find creative solutions to get around. And then at the end, it's an issue of like, oh, well, they are a really jam big jam now because it's like, here's the big bad guy. Here's Darth Vader. He's got his giant ship. Sure. He's got the tractor beam ready to pull him in. They're about sure. to be out of luck. And then they're gone. They're gone. And it's just like, ha ha, the conclusion to the Millennium Falcon's hyperdrive subplot. And uh, that's an example of like, okay, this is prominently shown to us as a thing. And if if the movie were to not resolve that in a way that is satisfying even something that mundane like engine trouble with the with the vehicle that they use we would have been like what sure um you can fiddle with this concept and you can do what's called a red herring right where you and i'm sure you know what a red herring is from log from my logical fallacy sure. days, well, yeah. so tell us about a red herring so a red herring is a a path that leads to nowhere right yeah. it's it's the it's the logical fallacy where this this isn't this isn't taking me to any place it's a series of argumentations that take me nowhere yeah usually we we think of a red herring as i think the term originates from like if you're being chased by a bear you throw a red herring off the, to the side to distract and the bear will go and eat that and right. then you can get away and so it's a it's a way to like if you get you can get your opponent to start arguing about this irrelevant thing then they'll leave alone your central argument sure um but in, in movie and screenplay terms a red herring is just where you you say uh, it's a lot of times used in murder mysteries and stuff where it's like, oh, look, um, the killer, what we know about the killer is that they have black gloves on. And then you see a character later with black gloves on that appear to be the same, but it turns out that they're not. Uh, that's a red herring. It's just a minor one, but it's meant to keep you guessing right. about what's really going on. So you can, that's a, that's sort of a inverse of it where it's like, uh, let's show them something and then sort of reverse that, um, expectation it's part of the reason why ryan johnson did pretty good with knives out and did really bad with star wars well that was gonna be my question is 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 some of this you know would you would you argue that you are, or would you suggest that some of this is genre based you know in a murder mystery yeah. mm -hmm. right um red herring is a good thing mm -hmm. right we we want that because we we don't want all the answers Gotta until keep all guessing, the answers yeah. right whereas we have to be challenged by the uh, by what's going by on what's going if you on, figure it out in the first 10 minutes you're bored already you're bored already yeah. right whereas you know in a in an epic, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, maybe not the best place for yeah. subversion and misdirection mm -hmm. because we want stories that follow uh, a more traditional, yeah, classical kind of mm -hmm. kind of framework. And so, you know, I, I do wonder if genre has something to do with all that. Probably, I, I'm sure that if somebody who's who's skilled, who has their their hand on a appropriate subject matter, could do it either way. In a multitude of genres, hmm. um, I can't think of any like we're to have sci-fi on the brain tonight. Just brought up Star Wars, kind of sci-fi, sci-fantasy. Sure, um, notoriously badly done inversion of expectations because Ryan Johnson made a big deal out of that with Episode Eight, right? And nobody liked it. Um, right. And uh, 
there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, unfortunately, we can't do an episode on those because they don't have a book. Right. But um, we might do one on the prequel because there's some novelizations of those that, that are actually uh, worth reading. Uh, yeah, yeah, um, sure. But, uh, yeah, the um, the excuse that he continued to give was, well, uh, subverting expectations is a good unto itself. It's like its own Yeah, it is virtuous by, yeah, yeah. by Mary. Um, but but that's that's not true. Sure. The context matters. The the way that your expectations fit within the story frame matter. And then he immediately came out knives out. Classic whodunit murder mystery. Yeah. Fifty bazillion characters. All of them have a motive. All of them could have been involved. Really a really good movie. Great movie. Um, yeah, really enjoyed it. And I was and I was not rooting for him. Sure. And so I I you can trust me on that because I don't like him. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm an enemy who says he made a good movie. Um, but uh, yeah. So anyway, that's the idea behind Chekhov's gun. So if you're writing a screenplay, if you're writing a, a book, same kind of deal. If you're writing a TV show and you prominently display something, then it needs to have a reason. One more one more on Chekhov's gun and we'll move into Dune. Okay. Um, we're, you know, you said we got sci-fi on the brain. They just recently announced that they're the the release date for the book of Boba Fett, um, which, is oh, yeah. the, which is sort of the spinoff from the Mandalorian series. Mm-hmm. And I'm reminded in the Mandalorian series in the first season – um, there's a little sort of knob on the uh, on yeah. the control of the mm-hmm. control panel of the uh, of his ship, mm-hmm. and um, at the very beginning of the series, you know the the little Yoda character is you know sort of playing with the knob, mm-hmm. and you he know, keeps getting it, it off, keeps getting yeah. it off, and um, and then in the second episode, I think it is, or maybe the third, but he's you know he's sort of completing the contract. And he looks down at the control panel, and yeah. the knob is missing. Yeah, right. And it's the sort of the, the he's getting ready, he's it, getting ready to go, and he needs to use that lever right, to activate to activate his the ship to go. Ship and yeah, and that's sort of the inciting. Mm. Uh, it's the turning point where where yeah. he decides like I'm not going to do this. I can't yeah. let them dissect this child, mm-hmm. right? Which is what we want him, right? Yeah. And so that's sort of what sets him on his journey. And anyway, it's just but like special attention is drawn to that knob. And then the the setup and then the payoff is yeah. is fantastic. The knob itself represents their relationship growth yeah, through sure. through how they handle that little doodad, right? Because initially he's like annoyed; he wants it back where it goes, right? Yoda keeps getting it, kind of goofing off with it, and then eventually we see him not caring that he has it, and he, he just sort of ignores it, and then and then of course it culminates with him, you know. He doesn't care about the knob at all anymore. Right. You know, it's not about the, the knob, the, it's about the kid. Yeah, and so, and then I think maybe it, maybe it's after that where he himself takes it off and gives it to him. At some yeah, point. something like that. Um, yeah. And uh, so it's like, here's your toy, I like you, you know. Sure. Um, yeah, so that's a good example where it's, uh, <coughs> they you know they might could have gotten away without coming back around to that, but it was a really great way to show, and especially in that show where you got a character who doesn't have a face basically right. till the very end, um, that like, He's 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 conflicted, or he was conflicted, and now his conflict is kind of clear. It's clarifying, sure, and that's a symbol of that. And so the way he stops and stares at this thing—that's just that's clever. I like that writing. That's good. yeah, it was good. It was really good, mm-hmm. and you know, the, it, it seems like a really good example of the mm-hmm. of the Chekhov's gun principle. So you know, aspiring authors, if you're out there, yeah, you know, as actors, um, screenplay authors, if you're mm-hmm. going to stage something. You know, give your things purpose, mm-hmm. right? Let draw attention to them and and make them matter. Yeah, so it'll draw it'll draw your audience into your story. So that's good, man. Good good call on that one. Yeah. 
So let's talk about Dune. Let's talk about Dune. Bring your mic down. Just Dune. Dune. So you just finished the book, or yeah. you finished the first book. Finished part of, one and yeah. a little bit of part two. Yeah. All right. So if you're not familiar, we're going to talk about the book first. And I think that we will probably do that most of the time because the book generally is going to precede the movie. We'll do yeah. a few that are in the reverse order, but not very many. Because most of the time, somebody comes out with a book. Um, and... You know, last time we did Jurassic Park, which was an example of one where a book came out and it must have been virtually instantaneous Gosh, that it was so picked weird. up for a movie. So. Um, now, there are people out there who are not necessarily authors you would know. Um, if, you are, if you are a YouTuber who likes movie reviews, the Critical Drinker is a, is a rather foul-mouthed fellow, but his, his reviews are pretty substantial and they're worth listening to they if are. you can stomach the blue language. Um, but he, that is, his real name is Will Jordan, and he writes books. He's an author. He writes thrillers. They're kind of like, um, oh, if you if you like kind of adult contemporary fiction, he would be similar to somebody like uh, maybe Tom Clancy. I was going to say maybe Clancy. Uh, his are not probably as involved. Um, it's like spy stuff. I've got a couple of them. Um, I actually haven't read them yet, but I, I intend to. That's just a way that I thought I could support him because I've enjoyed his content. Yeah, it's good. So rather than just give him money, I bought a couple of copies of his books. But... He was talking about how his books had been optioned, right? And I, and I don't think that he got paid a ton for that because he's not a known guy. Um, but they're good enough that a movie company was like, we would like to have the option to, to exercise film rights on these books. So there's a lot of authors out there that you probably haven't heard of that have their move, their their books in some sort of pro- part of the process of having them turned into movies. A lot of them won't ever become movies, but um, that's something if you're an aspiring author... Um, the advice that I've heard from folks is get yourself an agent. Um, it's worth it to find an agent. And um, if you don't know how to do that, uh, look into literary agents, get in touch with somebody and just ask them, hey, what does it take for you to represent us uh, or represent me and um, see what they say? They may say, well, we need to have a finished novel so that we can evaluate your skill and decide if you're worth our time. Mm. Then you have a goal, you know, if you don't already have a novel done. Anyway, rather than go at your own, try to self-publish, something like that. Um, that's his advice. So um, all that to say that movies usually come out of books as opposed to the reverse. And so we're going to often cover the books first, just for right. chronological reasons, because a lot of what the movie becomes is affected by the, the circumstances around the writing of the book mm. and who was involved in its writing and what they were trying to do. This is a good example of that. Jurassic Park was a good example of that. But that one was one, like I said, that was picked up within probably weeks of release where they were like, we got to make a movie out of this. Sure. So it came out and just maybe a couple of years later, it was released in the theater. And so, and that includes pre-production, production and post-production and all that stuff, the screenwriting process, et cetera. So now we're doing, we're talking Dune. Dune came out in 1965. That was the original publication date. And we have a Dune film being released in 2021. Why? (laughs) (laughs) So, let's talk about the book first. Uh, Author, Frank Herbert. Frank Herbert. Frank Herbert is, of course, science fiction royalty, primarily because of Dune, right? He's written a lot of other little short stories. Um, He was a journalist before this, photojournalist, and he he did writing as well. Did a little bit of time in the military. Um. He got the idea for doing Dune after being assigned to write an article on environmental ecology um, 
about some uh, uh, an area, ge- geographical area in Oregon that is called the Oregon Dunes or, or something like that. It's, it's something dunes. Gotcha. Which obviously had an impact on them. So yeah, a desert right. environment and the idea of like how to turn this desert into something better is kind of where he got the idea. And a lot of his desert information he got while researching that article, which he ended up never writing. (laughs) Um, He was able to become a full-time author um, because his wife at the time went back to work full-time. And so he, she was like, just go ahead and try to try to make something happen here. So he became a full-time writer, took him about five years to write it. Um, And uh, let's see, lots of short stories. Like I said, Um, some of, most of those would have been published in periodicals like uh, analog or astounding magazine um, which is a great, uh, there's a, speaking of that, there's a great book that you should read called astounding, um, about astounding magazine yeah. and like the early contributors to it. Like I've heard you talk about this before. Yeah. yeah, It's a really good book and it's just a, it's a great way to get exposed to really good early science fiction. Sure. So Herbert is basically a second generation science fiction guy. Right. So the golden age guys were Heinlein, Asimov, uh, Joe Campbell, uh, L. Ron Hubbard, um, and there's there's some others. Frank Herbert comes along a little bit after them. So those guys are writing in the 30s through World War II, right after World War II. Frank Herbert's 1960s, so pretty soon after. And he's starting to write at a different time, right? So we we I might have mentioned this with the Jurassic Park. It's going to come up some because I find it fascinating. Uh, we will do... We will do The Thing at some point, yes. which is based on a book by Joe Campbell Jr. Right. Uh, it's one of the only real things that he wrote. He, he spent most of his time editing other people's work. So he's he's a hero of sci-fi, but he didn't really uh, create a whole lot of content. Anyway, um, uh, at the time, science guys believed that atomic power was going to like save mankind. It would basically usher in an era like sort of like Roddenberry's vision in Star Trek, where it's like post scarcity. We, right. We'll have unlimited energy, and if we have unlimited energy, then we can do anything we want. We can go to the we can go to other planets. We can get everything that we need out of this planet without you know digging for fossil fuels and things sure. like that. Sure. Um, and they were very disillusioned with World War II because atomic energy was not used to go- to do good or to create, but to destroy. Mm-hmm. And then the world was entered into immediately into a Cold War where the the great powers were vying with each other to build the most world killing devices possible out of what they believed was going to be this this new salvation. Sure. So they turned from atomic power to. Um, almost like pseudoscience. They they basically have moved away from hard sciences into soft sciences, into psychology, into sociology. And the idea was if we can figure out what makes the human mind work, then we can we can solve all the problems. Right. Um, which is this is you can see how this evolved into L. Ron Hubbard's kind of bizarre cult because um, he wasn't always into that. He sure. was always kind of a con man type, but. Um, uh, he, he, you know, if you talk to a Scientologist today, they'll tell you it's not a religion, it's an alternative to psychology. And they got that concept because at the time everybody was turning to psychology as a way to kind of save the world, which obviously hasn't done that either. Right. Um, experimentation with drugs, right? Better life through chemistry comes along and there's legitimate forms of it and there's illegitimate forms of it. So Frank Herbert is in this era, early sixties writing, interested in planetary ecology, Interested in um, drugs. He was a recreational drug user. He grew shrooms. He was into um, 
a couple of things. Um, I can't remember them all right now. Um, but they were, he, he didn't take them just because he wanted to get high. He thought they would enhance his life. They would give him more creative energy. They would do, they had some self-actualization purposes. To yeah. Them. Um, so, and you can see these things in the move in the book. Yeah, right? sure. Um, yeah, the, the war, the fossil fuel fear, the, the, what spice does the, um, the psychoactive drug kind of concept. Um, and uh, environmental ecology starts coming up. He was kind of a libertarian type. Didn't like government. You can see that a little bit um, as well. Didn't trust it. Um, he uh, didn't like Vietnam, uh, the war in Vietnam, that is. Uh, so these things all are shading his writing in an era when people are turning to like less scientific and more spiritual ideas um and you know this this evolves we see this evolve it's this is this is in star wars the force is a is a that right downstream from this right more religious than a lot of what had come before but that's where it kind of came from sure so a lot of a lot of sci-fi had these mystical elements added to it and i think herbert was probably one of the first ones to really make it to like put it in in a way that was good and interesting and readable and in, in a way that you wanted to know more about so that's the kind of the context yeah. for him creating Dune. It wasn't an immediate bestseller, but it did pretty well. Won awards early on. And today it's considered to be uh, in the top five always, but maybe the best sci-fi novel, depending on the list that you look at. Yeah. And it's the best-selling one. Well, as a young as a young man getting into sci-fi uh, back in the day, Dune was on, you know, it was always yeah. the first thing people brought up. Mm-hmm. You know, if you walked into a bookstore and, and the shop owner said, "Hey, you know, what do you what do you want? Mm-hmm. I'm looking at sci-fi. Oh, well, have you read Dune? Sure. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's always the first question. It's like required. Yeah, you know? it's like yeah, required. You know, it's mm-hmm. like what are you into? Fantasy. Well, have you read Tolkien? Yeah. Right? You mean? I'm you glad had- you brought that up. We're gonna we got to do some of that. We got to do some compare and contrast for sure because people people can compare and contrast Dune with Lord of the Rings all the time, all the time, and rightly so. Um, now we here are biased and. Tolkien's world is better. Sure. Lord of the Rings is better. Sure. Um, but it's not, it's not, uh, dissimilar. It's not vastly better. It, well, it depends on how you define it, but like Dune is very good. Yeah. And there's so many similarities between these, these guys. Um, I don't think they would have gotten along. Uh, they weren't, they were not into, they didn't have shared interests outside no. of writing, but no. you've got two worlds and you've got, both of them are notoriously deep yep. and lived in and so well thought out. Um, of course, Tolkien's primary interest was languages, and that's sure. kind of where his storytelling emerged from. Herbert had a different perspective; didn't have that. Um, but language just doesn't play a small role in his books either. It's no. not as it's not as uh, the movie did a good job of fleshing out languages yeah. a lot. Yeah, um, that stuff isn't really contained in the book, but it's it's implied that language is important. Sure, um, the magic powers from the, vo- the, the, voice. the book are based on your use of language and pitch and yeah, it's not clearly defined, but anyway, obviously that has something that has some importance to him. Sure. So you've got that, you've got two guys who both passed away and their sons took over their legacy and continued it. And, um, kind of, kind of similarly where it's like, eh, it's not quite as good as the originals, but it's, if you like the world, you're going to like to you're read their like stuff. Yeah. Um, so there are six books that, Herbert wrote, Frank Herbert wrote, Brian Herbert, his son, carried on by, there was notes, there was pretty complete notes for a seventh book, which her, with which Brian turned into two books. Gotcha. And then he wrote um, off of some outlines and looser notes for several other things with a co-author. 
and um, they're I think mostly prequels. Um, they take place earlier. They explain a lot of the world because if you were watching this movie, there may have been some questions mm. like, "Where are the robots? Where? Why are there no yeah. laser guns? Sure. Why is that that there's no?" Um, why are there no computer? Like everything yeah, seems a, mechanical. It's, um, a, it's an odd juxtaposition yeah. of a technologically superior, more more advanced yeah. race, and yet a much more dare I say medieval yeah. kind of kind yeah. of culture and feel, mm-hmm. um, which is which is jarring if you don't understand some of the context mm-hmm. um, of of what's happened within the world of Dune. Yeah. Right. And so, mm-hmm. um, you get this in, in the book, probably a little bit more, but in the movie too, um, they do mention, um, they, they, they allude to, um, this sort of war mm-hmm. that, that has taken place between man and machine. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and the, the book, Butlerian Jihad yeah. is what they, I think there's a book called the Butlerian Jihad and the, and it's the butlers, the butlers up rose up. So it was a robot revolt. Yeah. And, 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 and they're a band. This is, I think Herbert doing Herbert is, is, is spot on here. Right. In talking about how, um, you know, an overdependence on the technology mm-hmm. um, is 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 ultimately a failing of failing on society. Mm-hmm. And you know, in, in the book, it talks about how they they've actually um, updated the Bible. I, I don't know. I don't yeah. know. They've they've you know. We'll we'll talk more about religion and the sure. role that it plays mm-hmm. here in a minute. But um, you know, it's it's in their codified uh, religious text mm-hmm. that uh, man shall not make machine in his own image yeah. right that, yeah. that uh, there seems to have been after this jihad mm-hmm. that you just referenced um a complete uh, abandonment of a pursuit of technology in, in that way yeah. right and so if every piece of technology to quote a friend uh, a friend of mine that i was talking with about dune before coming over here um uh, every piece of technology is a tool Right. Yeah, Nothing, it's very that, utilitarian no, there's no ai it's mm-hmm. very it, utilitarian is the right well word. the all right, so let's let's just get into the let's just get into it. Yeah. We're, um, so we've got let's talk let's talk plot. Um, well, actually, before we do that, let's talk about the circumstances of the films. Okay, so oh, the, yeah, the filming of Dune has been a weird ride, and part of the part of the reason for that is because Dune is uh, it's so vast, it's got such detail, <laughs> it's got such um, the themes are very heavy handed. They are the description of the world is very precise. Um, and it's really amazing to me that it, you know, you may watch a, a movie of it and think, well, that doesn't look exactly like I thought, but it's not far. Everything's huge. Um, you know, it's just, uh, it's it, all that stuff is in the book and, yeah. it, and it comes out, it kind of oozes out of the book. And so there has been before this, as far as I know, three attempts to make Dune films. Okay. The first one was done, was supposed to be done by Alejandro Jodorowsky, who I don't care for. Uh-huh. Um, Jodorowsky is a, I don't know what he is. He's like a sort of a artist of all kinds. He's done a few films. His most well-known film is El Topo. It's this bizarre abstract art. I don't even know what you'd call hey, it. Hey man, you just um, don't get it. Okay. You I don't, don't, you clearly no. don't understand it. Well, so here I'll give no, him this that, much If credit. you don't like a thing, that's because yeah, you don't get it. Sure. Well, that's what a lot of film snobs enough. say. Like if, <laughs> if you're a film student, you're probably going to be forced to watch El Topo because it's one of those that's like, um, this is like the abstract movie that's sort of, and I'll, and I'll give him this much credit. I think that in a lot of art, there's somebody comes along who does something bizarre and they change it. And I would look at like with poetry, I'd look at like T.S. Eliot. Mm. 
And T.S. Eliot did free verse, and his stuff is very odd. It doesn't rhyme in a lot of cases. And so if you don't, it, it demands study from you. Like mm-hmm. if you're reading T.S. Eliot, you've got to like want to understand it. Yeah. And if you don't, and I'm not a big fan of his. I don't really like it for its own sake. There's a couple of them that I enjoy. But um, I'm not saying that he's awesome. But I think that he changed poetry and that people who come after him are like hacks who don't know how to write poetry. So they just kind of throw random lines on a page. Right. Oddly formatted and call it a poem. Yeah, sure. Because they're trying to copy his style, but they don't understand it. And so you have a guy like Alejandro Jodorowsky who makes this weird abstract movie with real ideas behind it. And I don't like that either because I don't I want I want solid structure. Sure. I mean, Dune is about as weird and esoteric as I like. Um, and and then you have a bunch of people who come after him who don't know what they're doing. And they just are like, let's just make a weird abstract movie and we'll just throw random stuff into it. Right. And they don't have ideas. And yeah. it's just nonsense. And then they walk around pretentiously saying, you bring your own interpretation to it. And derpity derp, whatever. Yeah, sure. um, I don't like that, and I think that it changed filmmaking for the worse. Anyway, Jodorowsky's Dune never got made, regardless. There's an interesting documentary about it, though, because it was going to be completely bananas. <laughs> um, obviously, he uh, himself was going to bring a lot of that to the table. He wanted Salvador Dali to edit the film. Okay. Um, and, oh, that's an interesting choice. <laughs> yeah, and it was just, they were throwing money, or they were promising money, I should say, um, to everybody. I think Dali was like, oh, I'll do it, but you got to make sure I'm the highest paid artist in the world and he was like okay we'll do it he wanted orson wells to play the baron um which probably would have been a good choice um he want like there was just all these people who um they, they were bringing in and the concept art is is just wild and never got made because the studio pulled the plug on it so a few years later that was in the 70s a few years later David Lynch is attached yeah. to do the kind of now infamous Dune that sure. came out when Frank Herbert was actually still alive. Um, didn't really do very well. Didn't didn't sell very well. And it was a it was an odd movie. Lynch is kind of like like he's sort of abstract. He's a lot more. He's a lot less so than Jodorowsky. But like a lot of his stuff is weird. If you're not if you're not a if you're not accustomed to his stuff, um, you're gonna get weirded out by it. Um, he does some odd things. Um, if you're, if you are interested in Lynch, I, what I would point to would be to watch Twin Peaks, the original Twin Peaks TV oh, show. Oh yeah, sure. Cause that kind of eases you in. It, it starts out and you think it's kind of an odd, like there's, it's a little off, but it's not just crazy. It becomes crazy later, but like initially you can kind of, you can kind of figure him out. So, um, he's, he's an interesting dude, but he was chosen for this movie, probably chosen partly because of his ability to kind of deal with strange things. And Dune is a strange thing. It is. Um, Sting was in it. Um, (laughs) the guy from twin peaks plays Paul Atreides, um, whose name I can't recall. Uh, but, uh, that one didn't, didn't go real well. And then, uh, in the late nineties, there was a sci-fi made for TV miniseries, which I think was the best of those three. Yeah, I I would so, agree. Um, and it was it was that's actually okay. That's actually the only the only exposure I had to Dune. Yeah. Prior to getting ready for this this episode. Yeah. Was uh, the sci fi series. Yeah. And uh, I I remember watching it, you know, years ago and mm-hmm. thinking like, yeah, it was pretty good. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, they did an okay job. They they were able to take their time more yeah. so, which obviously we've got a guy here who's doing that with this new one. Right. So, so let's talk about. Uh, 
Let's talk about Denis Villeneuve or Denis Villanueva or however. I, I, I was saying Villanueva. I honestly yeah, didn't look it up. I don't. I don't know. So either. if we're mispronouncing your name, sir, please Denis. accept our, our humblest apologies. So Denis got a, got a handful of film credits now that yeah. are that are noteworthy. Um, I'm sure that Blade Runner had some effect on him getting this job. Blade Runner 2049. Yeah. Uh, did you see Blade Runner 2049? I actually didn't. I did. Yeah, um, do you like the original Blade Runner? Uh, I'm not as big a fan as other people are. Okay. It's okay. Well, Denny is a big fan of the original yeah. Blade Runner. <laughs> okay. Okay. And he and you can tell when when he when he made a sequel, which lost a whole lot of money. Unfortunately, it was a pretty good movie. Um, it's it's a bummer that it didn't make money. Everybody that watched it was like, "Why didn't this work?" We're kind of like, "It was too 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 slow, too boring." Yeah. Um, I love boring sci-fi, um, <laughs> so like the original Blade Runner is just super boring. Sure, um, it's it it's one hundred percent atmosphere. Um, it's it's interpersonal. It's very understated interpersonal interactions, which was the same in Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Um, it's very much the premise sold on its premise and then you know blade runner 2049 it's kind of the same deal um arrivals another one of his uh which i liked that one as well that's that's uh did you see arrival this was this one got rave reviews did it not i don't know i liked it a lot yeah i remember um, uh, maybe i'm just thinking like yeah. people i trust mm-hmm. um saying that it was fantastic yeah. Yeah, so I this is you, the I, one aliens come right and they're they're really it's a clever design for aliens they're like amorphous clouds kind of and they communicate with each other by forming shapes uh, with their bodies and so they send a mathematician and a linguist right. onto their ship right. like every day to try to like decipher, decipher their language the code right and uh the whole movie is about like the power of language and communication and um it's just a good one i really yeah. recommend it um and then he did he did some other ones. What what uh, have you seen any of the other ones of his? No, uh, Sicario I, I, is one a lot of people. Yeah, know. the Arrival was the one that mm-hmm. I had on my list, and I actually yeah. it was there, and then it fell off, fell to the wayside for other things. So yeah, um, well, but, you get around to it sometime. It's, yeah, it's worth your time. It's the one I got to circle back around to. So all right, so that's his pedigree. That's where he's coming from. Um, he's uh, I believe he's a French filmmaker, um, and he's a super nerd. Yeah, so he was a good choice for this. Yeah. Or For was sure. he? Let's talk about the movie. <laughs> yeah, you're ready to do it? You want to do a quick plot before we... Yeah, let's just go with the basic plot. Basic plot. Both, of... I mean, both movie and book. Basic sure. plot. Yeah. Go ahead. You, I've been talking too much. So, basic plot for Dune. Um, we're, you know, we're set, you know, year 10,000, way mm-hmm. in the future. And uh, there are some, some powerful political factions. You have uh, Emperor, who's... Sort of ruling. He's the emperor of space. Emperor of space. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, it's like and the pre- then, he's like the president of space. President from the Hitchhiker's <laughs> Guide to the Galaxy. That's right. And uh, you got some powerful houses that that sort of are jockeying for different political positions, yeah. and then it's uh, kind of a feudal. Yeah, uh, very feudal. System, yeah, very feudal. Except it's like planets instead of regions. Instead of regions. Yeah. Instead of fiefdoms. Um, although they use the, they do use, they that term, use yeah. the term. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so we, we enter in with the house of Atreides, mm-hmm. uh, who is the, the house with our sort of central character, Paul, who's the, the son of the, the Duke there. And they're being given over, uh, they're beginning rule of the planet of Arrakis. Yeah. Um, and, and the house that is being displaced is the Harkonnens. Yeah. They're uh, mortal enemies. They're mortal yeah. enemies. And so, um, 
It seems like good. It seems like a good thing for the House of Atreides at, on, at face value. It's but a, just something's off. Something's off. Yeah. Something's wrong, right? So, you know, it's it's a better, you know, they're, they're everything well, okay, so on first paper, of all, it, should, it should be Why better. is having that, why is owning Arrakis, why is having control of Arrakis yes, beneficial? He who, he who controls Arrakis mm-hmm. controls the spice. Oh. So, uh, spice is the, the, the most valuable commodity of, of the... In the universe, universe of yeah. Dune, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it is uh, got psycho um, uh, attributive properties. Yeah. It's also it's also used. Is it also used for fuel? Did I get that right? No, not fuel. So not fuel. So spice, which was also called melange. melange That's like yeah. it's melange is like that's it's like it's like technical a, name. Yeah, technical. Everybody name. just calls it spice. Um, it is used to so the. The it's he's vague in the book about yeah. exactly what it does, it, but he, it he says it's super important. Yeah, yeah, it enhances it enhances human beings mentally right. in certain ways, and it's not really a hundred percent clear on what it is. Now, at this point in the future, people have been basically um, selectively bred for right. certain traits, for certain and traits. so there's certain kinds of folks who would use spice for certain kind of things. And uh, you've seen, if you saw the movie, you've seen a couple of these characters and not much attention was called to some of them because they're just, they're almost like they didn't have much to do. So they just didn't have much to do. He didn't shoehorn in characters that didn't really belong, but you've seen a few, we'll get to them in a, in a little while. But the idea is that the spice is useful for kind of enhancing people's mental capacity. They need it. And in a world where they've basically sworn off computers right, um, as much as possible, the Spacing Guild, which is the only group, the only faction that has the ability to travel at uh, faster than light speed right. through space, needs it in order to be able to successfully calculate their path That's without right. running through planets and stuff like that. That's so they right. have to have it. So in order to travel anywhere, you have to have spice. You gotta have spice. The Spacing Guild has to have spice. Right. And you have to obviously pay for transit. And that, um, and that, that makes them... Uh, in some ways, a neutral arbiter, but also like yeah. you. But it's in the sense that every house needs to keep them happy. Yeah, right. Everybody's uh, got to play ball. with Everybody's got to play mm-hmm. ball with them, and so so they got to have spice for that. Uh, and then and then people who are wealthy just use spice to right. to enhance to, their life, and it's addictive. It's addictive, highly right. addictive. If you if you use it for too long, you cannot quit. No right. matter how like you can't go off of it, um, or you will die. So there's lots of very wealthy people around the universe, probably including the emperor and important people who um, have to have it. Yes. So like, um, and the only place you can get it is it's on, on the planet Arrakis, AKA Dune. Cause AKA it's entirely Dune. desert. Yeah. It's a desert planet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we pick up the story with Duke Leto, um, who is the head of the house of Atreides, mm-hmm. his son, Paul and his not wife, his con- concubine, concubine, yeah. Jessica. And which uh, Jessica allows us to talk about the Ben Jesuit. Um, yes, who's which is uh, another faction. Another faction, yeah. um, probably the last big faction. Well, we'll, we'll get to the Fremen too. Yeah. Uh, but the oh, man, the, there's a bunch of factions. There's a bunch of factions. He's a big into the factions. Yeah, he likes it. So the Ben Gesserit, This is mm-hmm. a sort of a, a secret society of. Uh, they're space witches. Space witches. Yeah. Uh, you know, and they're they're essentially they, they have exist. a religious. They're role. a secret order. Yeah, probably, it's probably better. It's not secret well, society. Secret order. I don't know. They're not exactly secret. People know who they are, um, but their activities are are very much. I guess that's uh, what I mean. They're they're sort yeah. of they they're in the background yeah. of all of the stuff. So they're like power have, brokers. They are they are the four D chess players, right? And they uh, they think 
long yes. term. They like have thousands exercised, of years in the future. Yeah, they have exercised a form of social engineering. Yes, that I think merits further discussion. Yes. when we when yes. we get to it. So, uh, but they're in order that that they're they're playing a long game, trying to trying to organize things in the way that they yeah. want. Um, and this leads our our characters to Arrakis, uh, where the sort of the ace or the 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 wild card mm-hmm. for for this for all of these factions is this group called the Fremen, and yeah. they're the they're the the natives locals, the, the natives, natives of Dune, yeah, of Dune, and so um, a very very tough, dangerous warrior culture, right. Who has kind of mastered the desert, they've and figured out how to survive in a place that kills everything, inhospitable, yeah, a place that is inhospitable, and so uh, we. We come to to Arrakis with the House of Atreides, and immediately, well, even before we get there, um, we're just essentially told that nothing is as it seems, right? Sure. That mm-hmm. um, one, of, well, actually, one of my favorite scenes from from the book uh, is when um, Paul is having his sword play lesson, yeah. and there's a there's a moment where he thinks his uh, fill in. Uh, master because Duncan Idaho is, is has has already left. He's off world. Um, is actually there to kill him, right? Which mm-hmm. um, immediately puts into our heads that we've got no one can be trusted. No one can be trusted. Yeah. We've got to we've got to sort of be on the lookout, mm-hmm. and that carries over um, into Dune. Um, our here our uh, POV character Paul. He's nearly assassinated. Yeah, um, he is. Um, certainly, he's he's sort of confronted by all of these characters and. Um, so, so we're all, we're on edge. We know, uh, we know that, that Arrakis is told, we're told that Arrakis is very, very dangerous. Right. Um, the, the Harkonnen ruled before and they ruled very tyrannically and the, the Fremen hated them and they constantly were fighting, but the Harkonnen were able to retain control through basically brutality and brutality sheer force. And fear. Leto, Leto, when he arrives, is hopeful to be, basically do a Green Beret thing where he's going to like try to initiate peaceful relations so they don't have to constantly fight the Fremen about the spice. Because the Fremen use it also. Sure. Um, and they have less mechanical ways of gathering it, although it turns out theirs are pretty sophisticated too. Sure. Um, but, uh, you know, he's hoping to ally with them. Right. Um, and their, and reasoning for that becomes more and more clear as the, as the book goes on. Uh, all the houses have various strengths and weaknesses. And um, Atreides is a house which was ascending in power through the wisdom and acumen of Leto's leadership. And uh, what should not be forgotten about is that his concubine and confidant is his uh, is Jessica, Paul's mother, who he is not married to for diplomatic reasons. Right. Um, and that never materializes for Leto, but that is an important thing to keep in mind. Sure. Throughout that, um, there's a there's a distinction made here between uh, concubines and wives, and uh, and that that politics plays a role. So they're they're a great house. They're one of several. Um, there's basically three mentioned in Dune, and I think in the expanded universe, there's maybe four or five other. Or, you know, there's it's implied that there's lots, yeah, probably dozens, sure. and they are of varying power levels. And Atreides, because they're becoming so powerful, the emperor is worried that they will overshadow right. his house, which is the house of Carino. And um, so he basically is setting them up right. to get wiped out. So and that, and that's revealed to us pretty early on. Yes. Right? Everybody um, kind of knows. Everybody like, kind of knows what's going on. Mm-hmm. And everybody who knows anybody who's a player yeah. knows, you know, um, we learn through, we learn through Paul's eyes. Right. Right. Cause Paul is a naive youngster. Um, he, he, he ages very rapidly in the story, but sure. like he doesn't get it at first. 
and people have to explain to him like like this like they're going to be back we've got to secure everything and be very like cautious and kind of paranoid hyper alert sure um and they were they were secure except for one thing except for one thing yeah. so Dr. This, this is where we're going to get to spoilers if you haven't seen the movie yeah um you should just go watch it and come back That's at right. this point or read the book whichever but you've been warned proceed so we uh we are introduced to dr ua yeah. who uh is a uh on on staff with the House of Atreides, yeah. he's their he's their physician mm-hmm. and uh, he, and a confidant. Yeah, the the book clarifies. This is another place where the book and the movie. So the, in the book, it it we get internal monologue, right? right? So right. you know, okay, he's a servant of the emperor. In the movie, they never say that, right? Or maybe they maybe they imply it, but I don't really remember. But he's not an Atreides house member. Right. He's actually there at the emperor's request. Yes, and um, he has a mark on his head that indicates that he is received a special conditioning yes to make him immune to like mind control and manipulation by others and so they basically this is a good example of a red herring speaking of that like sure. you're shown that this character cannot be the enemy he's, right. he's above suspicion right because he's got this mark on his head right and um which um turns out to be a, a mark mm-hmm. of derision right? yeah the harkonnen um, found a way right to manipulate him anyway and so. and um the uh, one of the predominant themes or or motifs i should say is uh the idea of like a half truth versus a whole lie mm-hmm. right and so uh, which is which plays up the political intrigue so mm-hmm. no everybody's speaking half truths yeah nobody's really nobody's saying really what saying what they mean mm-hmm. um and so but we in the when you read the book you get the internal monologue so yeah. you're mm-hmm. you're given insight as a reader um that uh, you, you, so you kind of get to see behind, you know, mm-hmm. the man behind the mask. Uh, but UA is able to um, use his training mm-hmm. um, and his understanding of the Ben Gesserit mm-hmm. because his uh, his wife was Ben Gesserit as well. Yeah. In order to, that's how he's sort of sort of able to accomplish the deception. Yeah. Is he has some experience um, and and just you know just that's so it's a twofold thing. He has he has the mark of the emperor like you just talked mm-hmm. about, but also ben, uh, Jessica and to a lesser extent Paul at the beginning yeah. of the novel are trusting their own training. Yeah. That like no one would be able to get away with that this level of deception. Yeah. Right. Especially that's why, that close. That's why them. they're so taken by it is mm-hmm. because they 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 trust their own training. Yeah. Um, to their demise. They have um they have some not very clearly defined powers. Yeah. Um, the voice is one of them. They yeah. have the ability through a means that is not made clear. Um, I guess through practice and, I mean, and like, discipline training, they figure out how to essentially give verbal commands that are simple commands that cannot be disobeyed. Um, and it's shown to us that certain characters are better at it than others. Right. Paul is new to it. He uh, may be the first scene or, or very early in, in the movie when he's practicing it with his mother at the breakfast table. And um, uh, so they have the voice, they have the ability to detect lies. Um, it, it, it's a, it, it's stuff that gives you a, an advantage in interpersonal communication. It's really weird blend of like magic. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. And, but then also just like heightened awareness. Yes. Right. So this, this kind of, and that's where, like you said, it's, it's not really well defined mm-hmm. because sometimes you're like, Oh, they're just, they're like Sherlock Holmes. Yes. Right. They have just honed a skill. Right. To a point that's superhuman. But like the voice is definitely magic. You yeah. know what I mean? Like that's mm-hmm. not. 
It's cast. Like, it's spell casting, right? You know, like you're using your words to change you're reality. Using your words that's to charm. essentially. And yeah. I, I don't think that's what I, I don't. I'm sure Herbert didn't intend it to be spell casting, but um, that's kind of what you get. That's kind of what you get because you're making people do. I mean, it's not a whole lot different from the Jedi mind trick, right? You know, um, and uh, so they they can do that kind of thing. So anyway, UA tricks so, them. So we know? get to the we get to the planet. We find out that the Baron is still the Baron of the Harkonnens. Who's he's there. He's the Duke Leto of the Harkonnens, mm-hmm. right? He's their leader. Um, he's he's got machinations and plans mm-hmm. that that involve a traitor. Yeah, it's revealed to us that it's UA and that the Emperor is helping. Yeah, him, and that he's is, he's being bankrolled you know, by the by the um, yeah. the and ruling his, class up, up to up to and including the deployment of the Emperor's elite warrior the cast. Yeah. yeah, who are which are. They're awesome. They might have um, been the most captivating, and they were just not very in it very much. Right. But they're like the visuals of their planet and their like deployment in combat yeah. was. I, I wanted more. Yeah, that's um, that was good stuff. They were horrifying monsters. Yeah, but uh, yeah, that was awesome. And so um, Duke Leto is when he as soon as he gets to the planet, he begins trying to establish uh, relations with the Fremen. Mm-hmm. Um, he tries to. Um, establish relationships with the locals. We get a very cool scene in the book that we don't get in the movie, mm-hmm. um, which is a dinner party. Um, yeah. And and there's a, sort of a plant there by the emperor. Mm-hmm. Um, he, you know, he and and there's a young lady who's supposed to sort of seduce Paul and sort of distract him from his yeah. duties and maybe try to kill him. We don't know. Yeah. It, it never materializes. Um, it's a very short scene. Um, but there's a there's a character who deals in water. Yeah. Um, water being the most valuable. He's a, he's like a scummy merchant. Yeah. He's like a, of, yeah. yeah, like sort of a, uh, yeah, like a slumlord kind mm-hmm. of, you know, I've, I've got wealth and you people need me. Right. Yeah. So, um, and then, uh, a couple of other characters too. Um, but, but it's an attempt to try to shore up support from different factions yeah. and, uh, establish and let us trying to establish himself as a, as a genuine and preferable alternative to the Harkonnens. Yeah. Um, and it's, and it sort of set the tone, right? Yeah, like, right. If you're a scummy water merchant who takes advantage of people, you're going to have to have a reckoning with me, right? You know, you're not going to be able to just grease my palm sure. like you could with the like last guy. Like you could guy. with the yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Now this and, is all understated, right? This is all subtle. Yeah, very. Um, it, it comes across as very realistic political or politicking banquet kind of situation, right? And all the players are doing their own things, right? So, but go ahead. And then, uh, and then you know, kinds. Yeah, uh, who's who's uh, the uh, the go between? Yeah, uh, he's between, an imperial agent. Yeah. He's a book. He's a dude in the book. They they, yes. they gender swapped that character in the movie. Right. I cannot remember the actress's name. She did fine. Yeah, she was fine. Um, and she plays the same role. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and and he's uh he's a loc he's 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 well versed in the Fremen. He's culture. been there so long that he practically is. Fremen. He basically is Fremen. Yeah. Um, and he's uh his position is the. Something of the change, the judge of the judge change. of the change. Yeah. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, so he and he's an imperial plant too. Yeah. Right. So like he's he's, he's supposed he's, to help make sure that the Harkonnen don't sabotage the Atreides. Right. Like when they leave, they got to leave all the equipment so the Atreides can immediately resume spice production at exactly. the same level. And uh, they, you know, the Harkonnen didn't do that. Right. Just out of spite, pretty much, they just wrecked a bunch of stuff. And, and like he's a really great character mm-hmm. because you know when we're first introduced to him. You know, you're you're kind of led. He, we get through his internal monologue that he's not on our side. Right? Yeah, like he's he's, a, he's very neutral. He's very like mm-hmm. he's he's Doesn't not trust them. right. Mm-hmm. But um, in what in one of the episodes, um, 
towards uh, middle middle towards end, and we get it in the movie too, when the Duke Leto goes out to see how Spice's mind, yeah, um, Kynes is with him, and Duke Leto's. Um, value of life his leadership yeah. his uh he cares more about the men on he cares the more about the men there. on the uh, on the spice mm-hmm. uh minor than he does the actual spice mm-hmm. um he's a man of action um he's he's decisive he's mm-hmm. bold uh, but but also wise and kind and mm-hmm. and so anyway all, all those character traits sort of come out in that little episode and i really love the end of that chapter kind says you know despite myself I find I find that I like this Duke Leto, right? Yeah. That they, there's a, and it's a really great um, use of the character in order to kind of show like this is this is the effect that Leto has on on people that you just can't help but like him. Yeah, right. He's yeah. definitely one of the best characters. Jessica comments on that, like she's always in awe of his ability to like win over men, right, to his cause, to his cause. Yeah, he's a, and that that shows in the loyalty of his housemates, like his like Gurney Halleck, Gurney and, Halleck. Uh, we're and, throwing a lot of character names out, but basically these are the Atreides, um, kind of the core group of of his advisors, right? Um, and everybody loves Leto, and he is supposed to represent everything good. And I'm gonna, I'm not gonna lie, when I went to see this movie, I knew it was in gonna be in the movie. And I was I was genuinely nervous to watch, sure, because I knew that th- particularly this part of the book is the downfall of Leto and Atreides, and it's and I was like I don't think I want to watch Oscar Isaac get killed, yeah, by Harkonnen, you know, and and I, and so I knew that it was coming the whole time, and you don't have to have read the book to know that, sure, it's telegraphed early, which could be a problem, like if it's a if it's a lesser lesser movie, um, but like. You have a guy, this director loves the source material. He wants the tone to fit. He wants everything to be just like the book. There's a, there's a scene in particular that, um, and I'm sorry, I'm deviating from the plots. Oh, you're fine. But when they hire the housekeeper, Shadut Mapes, that scene is in the book. And she pulls out a Chris knife, which is a knife made out of a sandworm's tooth. If you didn't catch that. Um, Sandworms are the giant worms that, are one of the only native life forms on Dune and they're multiple football fields long and can eat like a whole stadium full right. of everything. So, um, they're very, very dangerous. There are areas of the planet where they aren't, so you can go there and be safe, but the spice is always where the worms are. So you have to go out and get it in these mobile factories and they have mechanisms to remove them. Anyway, they got a, they got a worm tooth made a knife out of it. And so she pulls it out to give it to Jessica and Basically, she says, "If you if you can tell me what this is, it's yours. And if you can't, I'm going to try to kill you with it." Right. Is kind of what the implication is. Right. Like you're either you're either a promised messiah or a faker, and you have to be assassinated. And so uh, Jessica looks at the knife, and in the book, yeah, it says specifically that what she was going to say was, "It is a maker of death," if I remember it right. Mm-hmm. And she said, "It is a maker." And and the housekeeper, who's a Fremen, who's like interested in the the Fremen religion and the prophecies of a Messiah that is coming, sure, breaks down in tears and is so excited because she knows that because because Jessica knows what this thing is that she is the mother of their Messiah, and um and she was about to say the wrong thing, right? But because she started with the, the word maker, she got it right. She kind of was like almost like a lucky guess, right? And um. And in the movie, the scene plays out in such a way that if you watch it, you can tell 
that she was about to say more words. Yep. Like the actress, and I can't remember her name, but when she delivers the line, she starts to say maker of death, but before she can say of, she gets interrupted. Yep. And I was so enchanted by the fact that he wanted it to be... And he never goes back and says that anything else about it, he right? Doesn't. Like he doesn't go back and clarify. There's no scene later where she's like, boy, that was lucky. I almost said maker of death. You know, right. it was just very subtle. And if you're a person who read the book, then that's just kind of a reward that you get. And I imagine that subsequent movies will clarify a little bit more of why the Chris knife is important and why calling it a maker matters. Um, I guess you haven't gotten to that yet. Yeah, I'm not there yet. Um, so we won't go into that, but like all these things have to do with the Fremen religion, which is another big part of it. So sure. the Bene Gesserit have been at work for centuries with their master plan of creating through selective breeding and their social engineering program, creating like an evolutionary leap for humankind. Right. What their goals are are not clear, but they come to Jessica, they test Paul, and they say Paul basically has Bene Gesserit skills, like talents and abilities, sort of like innate magic. And she's been teaching him, and they basically say his powers are, are sufficiently advanced that if he can't control himself, we have to assassinate him. And he does. So that happens very early, so it's not like a big plot twist. Right. And they say this kid could be the one that we've been kind of trying to make through selective breeding. Um, and so for centuries, they've been manipulating relationships and political alliances and getting people to marry off and have kids. And um, their kids have been made to have kids with other people's kids. And so eventually we're down here to Paul in the year 10,000, whatever. And they're like, he might be one of them. And if he is, then great. This is a big, big deal. So in order to kind of prepare the way, the Bene Gesserit sends in agents to basically create a religion amongst native populations. Right. One of which was the Fremen on Arrakis. So they went in and they kind of spread this religion. And the, the religion spoke of a Messiah who would come and kind of help them throw off their oppressors, take back their planet, and usher into a an era where they would have water right. and plants. Plant and like an And like a water cycle and an ecosystem right. that was more than just deserts and rocks. And so uh, they have been, the Ben and Jesuit have been working out of the book. We, we, we were told this, like, oh, they've been at work. We can see what they've been doing. Um, that they've been preparing the way for Jessica and Paul to arrive so that they can kind of assume this pseudo-religious identity and right. kind of own the planet that way. I have always interpreted this, and I could be wrong. I've never studied this book like a scholar, but I've always interpreted this as the Bene Gesserit didn't really believe that. They were just trying to make things easier for themselves politically. And in Dune, it seems to be the case in the first book that Paul is actually growing into this Messiah figure. Right. And so you're left wondering often, like, is this a real prophecy or is this something that they made up to help themselves? And if so... Or is it both? Right. Did they just, did they, are, are the Bene Gesserit not as in control as we thought? Right. So Paul is there. The Harkonnen show up through the traitor, the treachery of Dr. Yue. They, they capture the Duke alive, but Yue gives him a trump card and replaces his back tooth with a molar filled with poison gas um, because they know that the Duke is going to want to personally kill him. So he, they, they take him paralyzed before the Duke in a terrible scene. Uh, while Paul and his mother are, um, brought, are are removed from the building and taken in an ornithopter, one of the spa- one of their little desert planes, right, 
and they're going to be hurled out into the desert to die uh, because the Duke or the Baron promised not to not to hurt them. Right. He's not going to. He's just going to let the desert kill them. It's, right. He's got this loophole. And this is this is because he wants to avoid being brought before a truth yeah. sayer. Yeah. And, Who will know if he's lying? Right. And then he'll be in deep doo doo. Right. Um, so, so that's the plan. So they escape via the voice. Um, they get out of it. They they have uh, UA has planted supplies for them in that ornithopter. And so he he betrayed them unwillingly. They had his wife. He knew that they were going to kill him and her. The book is more clear about that than the movie, right? Um, and he, but he wanted to give her the release of death, basically. So he he does it, goes through with it, and but he does everything he can to to screw up the Harkonnens' plan, right? That he won't be detected before his his demise. Um, so um, Leto gets an opportunity to crush the tooth. He hurts the Baron, kills the Baron's chief advisor his mintat yes which is like a super genius um his name is peter devries i don't think his i don't think his name is ever even used in the movie i don't think um, it is he's either. in he's plays he plays he's in the movie if you saw the movie you saw him he's sort of a skinny guy he goes to the sardaukar planet to get them to come um and just sort of seems he's a much worse character in the book yeah he's very loathsome yeah um kind of a psychotic type but um uh, Mentats are another thing in the book that um, the the Atreides have one as well. You would notice them because there's a couple of places where people ask them questions and their eyes turn white, like their yeah. eyes roll back in their head while they're thinking because they're essentially living computers. Right? They're they're they are the computers. Yeah. Of, of this um, and they're strategists and advisors, and they can calculate odds. And they live like that. They live lives solely based on logic. Yeah. Um, so they're in it. They don't play a huge role, but. This is one of the things. So, so Paul is essentially potentially a mentat, potentially a Bene Gesserit, potentially an everything. Right. And so he's like a super Superman kind of. He's right. kind of got all the gifts of all the people. We think we're not sure yet, but he's growing towards those ends. And like Spice could potentially unlock some things. Sure. And um, so uh, the Harkonnen take back control of Arrakis. Um, a lot of people, a lot of good guys get killed. Paul and his mother escape, run away. Um, run into uh, Leet Kynes where, and he uh, he tells him to go find the Fremen. The Fremen might help him. They do, and um, when he arrives at the Fremen, uh, they have a fight to the death. Um, and uh, he is Paul is victorious because he's extremely well trained, and his abilities have blossomed a little bit. He has a little bit of mild precognition, so he can kind of uh, anticipate his opponent's movements. Right. Um, and he goes with the Fremen, and that's kind of the end of of that first section and the end of the movie. Right. So there, so there's there's the plot synopsis for us. <clears throat> well done. Wow. Lot to cover, and dude. Yeah. Lot to cover, and dude. Lot happens. <laughs> uh, let's let's go into some brief analysis here. Um, a couple of things I wanted to highlight, and then I'll let you I'll let you steer the ship here, but. Um, one of the things I really enjoyed about reading Dune, and then um, and the movie kind of brought this into sharp focus for me because it's, it's the cinematography of the movie is beautiful. Yeah, he's really um, good at that he's stuff. Re- yeah, Blade clear. Runner is a similar kind of thing. Yeah, maybe to a fault even because there's a lot of just drawn out. Ooh, look sure. at this! Every shot looks like a masterpiece painting. You know, right? Uh, but but Frank Herbert in in writing Dune. Um, one of the things that is really unique about his writing style is he's not afraid. In fact, he often employs um, a shift of POV. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, the the dinner scene that I mentioned earlier that's actually not in the film 
um, is a really great example, but it's, it's throughout the whole book. It actually was really jarring for me at first mm-hmm. because it's just so rapid. It's so yeah. quick um, that sometimes there would be a times where I would read a page and be like, wait a minute. Who is this? I've, I've yeah. for, we've shifted and mm-hmm. I didn't realize it. So Paul's not thinking this. He can't be thinking this, mm-hmm. right? And so anyway, I, you know, go back and, and take a look. And um, anyway, I was, I was sort of chewing on that and thinking, man, it's really unique. It's kind of even kind of strange. And, um, and then I, you know, I started thinking about it more, um, that sand is shifty, right? It's, it's a thing that is constantly, yeah. And and it's, it's constantly sort of morphing and Mm -hmm. changing shape based on, you know, the different elements, uh, different, different, um, pressures and things, you know, wind and the waves and, um, shifting and, and the, um, tectonic plates or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Right. And just sand, sand is just constantly, um, adapting to its environment. Mm-hmm. And the, the writing style mm-hmm. reflects the, the central motif of the whole book, mm-hmm. right? It is constantly shifting, yeah. which, which is a commentary on its main conceit, which is political yeah. intrigue. Right. Mm-hmm. So like, there are just so many layers it's an there. unsure footing. Yeah. yeah. It's uh, everything is unsure. Mm-hmm. Nothing is as it seems. Yeah. Right. And so there's just so many layers there that I think, um, Herbert, I think, it, I think it's masterful, mm-hmm. right? Like at first, at, fa- at first I was kind of, put off by mm-hmm. it i was kind of like i don't think i like this yeah. right i i'm 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 well, of a similar I, mind of view where like i like structure yeah i like to know what's going on um but as i started to think more about the you know the implications and thought why why would he do that um i don't know i was just i was kind of taken with it mm-hmm. yeah so. that's clever stuff there's a couple of those there's some movie design stuff too that i'm Kind of in a similar vein, it's almost like one of those things where it's like you you didn't notice it, but your brain did. Um, did you notice that no Harkonnen has hair anywhere on their body in huh. the movie? You know, uh, for, for what we it. for what we could see, up to and including the like kids, because there's a scene where the Baron's like in the tub full of black tar, right. and there's like kids playing instruments. They don't have any hair. They don't have any hair either. And um, I did not. I actually yeah, didn't consciously notice that. Yeah. So when you know. Mammals have hair, and um, and when you have a when you have a I don't and I don't know if it's like okay their fashion is that they shave all their hair off that that's just what they do to kind of be a Harkonnen it's like an identifying mark right or if it's a genetic trait because I don't think that's in the book I don't think that there's much physical description of like oddities about them but clearly Villeneuve or whatever Denny wanted a, a um he wanted clear visuals right um. The Sardaukar have a unique look, right. which in the book they would not have had because they were trying to conceal them amongst the Harkonnen because they didn't want the Landsrad, which is the, all the houses, they didn't want them to know the Emperor was picking sides. Sure, because it would cheese them off and they would they would be in a civil war pretty much instantly. So they were hiding, and the way the the Atreides recognized them was from their unique fighting style and uh, like they they did things that were like no that's not a Harkonnen thing that's a Sardaukar thing right that's the imperial forces and so that's how they knew the empire and that that becomes an important thing to know later because later Paul's trump card is if you know I'm going to tell <laughs> you know like right. I'm going to tell all the other houses if we can get communications off world right so it's a it's a it's a ace up his sleeve that he knows the Sardaukar were involved. Yeah, it's why um, it's why his continued existence, mm-hmm. Jessica's continued existence, is a real problem for the emperor. Yeah, right. So, so anyway, back to the Harkonnen. This, so this is a visual thing. This is a thing probably that Villeneuve wanted to do, um, where he's like, okay, how can we make them unique? 
And so I wonder if he didn't have in mind for them to just not have hair because over the course of 10,000 years, the Harkonnens, wherever they were, they sort of micro-evolutioned into having no hair. Mm. And mammals have hair. And so I'm thinking, I'm sitting here thinking, reptiles don't have hair. And I'm wondering if he wants us to view them as other than human. Yeah. Monstrous, reptilian, not because they weren't scaly. They didn't look like reptiles, but like, that's an odd choice. Right. Um, that's a, and so, you know, Dave Batista plays one of them. Peter doesn't have any hair. The, the Baron has no hair. Right. And, um, and there's no exceptions to it. And so like even the extras that are Harkonnen soldiers don't. Yeah. So, um, there's some subtle choices and I wonder maybe if, if like Herbert may have done that with his choice of like shifting POVs to keep you off balance as if you were walking through a, a treacherous desert landscape or, and then visually speaking, then he wanted to create a certain look and do certain things. Yeah. The so. storytelling matching the motif and the medium, mm-hmm. I think, um, is 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 something that you know for those of our viewers and listeners who are aspiring storytellers mm-hmm. take that into account yeah. right if you can sort of subtly uh dare i say subconsciously mm-hmm. you know sort of plant these things in your audience's head they go a long way to adding to the astore of your yeah, sure. uh, of mm-hmm. your story so anyway that was one thing I, mm-hmm. I wanted to bring up but you know kind of the main thing that's really unsettling about dune um you know we mentioned this already once but it's it's a very medieval story right yeah. it, you know um it's it's sci-fi for sure um but the the context for all the reasons we've already discussed like it's just got a very medieval feel and so i don't wonder you know how much uh, or excuse me i wonder how much um you know, Frank Herbert was inspired by the medieval period, you know, and, and you know, are the does, is the Ben Jesuit his idea of like, this is how the Catholic Church, yeah. you know, affected politics during the medieval period mm-hmm. is are the House of Atreides, are they England? Yeah. Is the, are the Harkonnens France? You yeah. know, is, you know. Um, so you say that, and but there's also the presence of uh, contemporary politics, right? Because Spice, okay, so see if you follow me here. Yeah, go for it. Spice is a rare resource that occurs in a desert area, and you have to have it for transportation. Sure, sure. Right? So wars over oil, yeah, right? Um, right? Middle Eastern oil. And that's part of the reason why, when it, in my mind's eye, whenever I read Dune, I always thought of the Fremen as Middle Eastern. Um, and I read, like, I had Middle Eastern accents in my head. And in the movie, they're kind of a diverse crowd. Like, they're everything. Right. Um, they, they aren't a particular um, ethnicity, but... Uh, um, so there's some of that too, where it's like, you're commenting yeah, on this, you're commenting on modern ecological issues with regard to like desertification and like, and, and one of the, one of the plot uh, sort of, it's very it's a little subtle, but like the idea is like, we had the idea, the original idea before spice was discovered was to turn Arrakis into a like to terraform it, right. To, right? to to cultivate enough plant life that water could be retained and like a water cycle could initiate on its own. That's kind of their goal. And if they could do that, then more plants would grow, like it would kind of grow and become less of a miserable wasteland. Right. And so once that happened, once they discovered spice, they abandoned the project because they were afraid that if they fiddled with the environment that the spice would stop. 
because they didn't know where it came from exactly. And um, they just emerged in the desert. There's a couple of scenes in the book where they, there might be a scene. I'm trying to, there's a, one of the characters, I don't know if it's in the first part of the book, but one of the characters basically gets killed because they collapse on, on top of a spice bloom, like spice erupts out of the ground basically. And, um, must maybe it's in the second part. I don't remember, I don't remember who it is, but, uh, it's somebody, but they, they, they're in the desert wandering and they collapse onto an area and they, they, they can smell the spice getting strong, like, because it has a distinct smell. It's commented on a few times and, uh, and then spice blows up out of the ground and it's implied that they die from that. Um, and it kind of moves on, but, um, so anyway, it erupts out of the ground. They're not really sure exactly how, um, the Fremen know how Hmm. I'll tell, I'll give you that heads up, but, uh, anyway, yeah. So that's, that's the idea is like, well, they could fix it, but they don't want to because they, they derive value from it being a a horrible nightmarish wasteland. And the Fremen, as much as they have kind of adapted and love the desert, they want to have a planet that isn't trying to kill them all the time. Right. So um, that's that's going on underneath well, as well. And this brings up the social engineering, mm-hmm. which plays – social engineering plays a heavy role. Yeah. So it's politicking, politicking, politicking. Right? Yeah. But also the social engineering piece. And that to me, that's maybe the most disturbing element mm-hmm. of – but it's also like the most intriguing element yeah. of Dune, I think. Uh, is this idea that like you know a, a social elite mm-hmm. right whether it's whether you consider it to be like a nobility the nobility mm-hmm. or even just the Ben Gesserit, which is yeah. like this sort of you know order of whatever but mm-hmm. you know the social elite can have this have this um, wield this tremendous tremendous amount of uh, influence mm-hmm. uh, you know over these cultures in order and and it's it's heavily it's it's told directly in the book and heavily implied in the in the movie um that the ben Gesserit have been planting myths mm-hmm. and and religions uh different you know these different um belief structures on all kinds of different worlds yeah. and and it's it's extensive enough that jessica's not a hundred percent familiar with like what story's been planted here yeah right she comments on that a little bit mm. i can't remember if it's the book or the movie or both uh but she comments on like she doesn't know the particulars of the of the fremen mythos mm-hmm. because there's so many different myths mythos yeah. that it could be yeah right and so this idea that like the social elite have the can wield enough influence that they can, you know, guide an entire culture mm-hmm. um, and essentially keep them enslaved, mm-hmm. th- not through force mm-hmm. but through social engineering is is a really disturbing concept. It's yeah. really unsettling. Um, and and now if we apply your comments about like a modern politicking mm-hmm. um, sort of commentary, yeah. then is is Herbert suggesting? that we've engaged in social engineering, you know, that we're the social elites, yeah. right? We're the Atreides, the Harkonnen, mm-hmm. the Emperor, Ben Gesserit, whatever. Uh, but we've we've engaged um, th- that some elements uh, in the West have engaged in social engineering. And the House of Atreides, um, I should say, I shouldn't have lumped them in with everybody else. The House of Atreides is the um, the noble class that, like, wants to you know, sort of shirk those things, mm-hmm. ally with the um with the local inhabitants mm-hmm. and like partner with them in mm-hmm. order to create a better world. The Harkonnens, you know, they rule through fear and and 
um, tyranny, mm-hmm. but the Ben Jesuit do it through social engineering. You know, so like yeah. you have these different ways of like yeah. interacting with this native population. Yeah, and like the House of Atreides is clearly meant to be like this is the way that like these are the good guys. This mm-hmm. is the way you probably should do it, but they also get wrecked. Yeah, and so. I don't know. I just wonder if or Herbert's not coming. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> we gotta we gotta keep we gotta get to the end. But yeah. but but you know, I, I just wonder if Herbert's not commenting on, um, you know, is is this uh, meant to be sort of a uh, a warning or even uh, a, sort of a ridicule of um, the different ways that the United States or the West in general mm-hmm. has gotten involved mm-hmm. with other cultures and done social engineering. Sure. Yeah. I mean, like is the Bene Gesserit supposed to be like us foreign intelligence? Yeah. You, right. CIA. Like, uh, they're screwing or they're, they're overthrowing dictators here and there. And, uh, we, we're propping up these, these yeah. puppet governments. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't even, I don't know enough to even know. Yeah. Uh, but like I'm thinking 65, 70. Yeah. Right. I mean, it seems. Yeah. A lot of satellite cold war was going on. Right. So you could see, you could easily see America and Russia. In, well, spy, espionage, yeah, right? Like that was nothing safe. They were vying for control of resource-rich areas of the of the world sure. that are that are of limited, um, limited in, in number, and some of them are hostile in environment. So, if if the Harkonnen, if the Harkonnen and the Atreides teamed up, they could fix it, but they're too self-interested, or the Atreides were trying to fix it, but everyone else was too self-interested to stand by and let them because they didn't want, they didn't want the status quo to be upended too much. Sure. sure. Um, so yeah, that's, there's some, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, commentary that is interesting. It's got more, more than one level of interest. Oh, well, and there's the layers again, right? Yeah. There, there's, you know, and, and, and I wonder too, if this isn't, um, you know, because I immediately my mind went to England, France, Roman Catholic Church, mm-hmm. medieval period, right? You brought in well, what about like a, a modern, mm-hmm. right? Especially looking at the demo, the the landscape and yeah. and and more of the particulars of the plot. Mm-hmm. And I also think it's you know not a coincidence uh, that those two things you can lay them on top of each other mm-hmm. and find a lot of similarities just between those two things, right? So yeah, and then and there's other ones too that are not quite as like pronounced so the sardaukar for instance the sardaukar are the are the elite warriors of the imperial house the imperial house is carino which is one of the houses it's not particularly special other than it's had the the imperial throne for a while they have a prison planet called Seleucus secundus yes and they hurl all their prisoners there and anyone that survives gets to be a sardaukar and it kills i want to say they give a number it's like half or something like that and so by the time, then there's a there's a, a civilization there. Like there's, and I guess there's prisoners of both genders, and they can have babies and stuff. But the world itself is a horrible nightmare. It's uh, they don't give a whole lot of, of detail about it. The way they show it in the movie is doesn't look great. Um, but like they're a warrior race. Mm. They have a warrior religion, which you could probably infer that the Bene Gesserit created their religion. They are obsessed with ob- with observing the will of their emperor. And so the book makes commentary that the reason why they're so dangerous and so tough is because their planet is horrible. And the only people who survive there are very, very tough. So the Sardaukar are essentially slaves of the emperor. They're prisoners, literal prisoners of the emperor. Their antagonists, their opposite number, 
are a people who are almost literally called the free men, right? The right. Fremen. And they are also incredibly tough because their planet is a horrible nightmare. And so it's made clear early in the book that they think that the Fremen and their military abilities will be so significant that they will they will be able to essentially give Atreides the ability to resist the emperor himself. Right. Because they can call, hopefully, if they are able to cultivate the relationship well, they can call on the Fremen to help them if the Sardaukar were to be called in to attack them. Now, as the as the plot rolls out, that they're not able to do that. They didn't have enough time to cultivate that relationship. But they did find out that the Fremen are way more numerous than the Harkonnen thought. And we find out that the Fremen are even more dangerous than they realized. Right. Right. Like they're, they, they're fairly primitive, but so this is another thing. Let's talk about weapons and yeah. stuff. Um, Let's do it. So in the, in the movie, you may have noticed that most of the combat is edged weapons and um, they, they explain why that is. Now there's a, there's a good plot reason for it. Why do you think it's edged weapons instead of ranged weapons most of the time for plot reasons? For plot reasons, the shield technology, mm-hmm. you know, um, is is sort of the the thing that's given to us to say like, mm-hmm. here's why you gotta be good with a sword. Yeah, is because the shield is gonna stop anything that's moving past a yeah. certain velocity, mm-hmm. right? So. The sword is a thing that you can control its velocity enough yeah. that you can sneak in underneath a and shield. You, yeah, you can even swing the sword too fast and a shield will stop right. it. So you have to kind of adapt your style to where you can move fast to position yourself to strike in a way that will penetrate the shield. Right. They have laser guns. When you shoot a shield with a laser gun, the laser gun blows up. Right. That's what the book says. Right. I don't think they get into it in the movie much. They, yeah, I don't think you, they get into the you movie. You cannot at all. use a shield in on Arrakis, or at least not in the open desert, because the worms, the worms come, come from everywhere well, to kill you. So here's an interesting thing, and you've read the whole book, yeah. so you've got you've got more knowledge than I do. Mm-hmm. They say that, but so so I had this question, right? Mm-hmm. I got to keep reading. But Duke Leto, um, in the beginning, you know, he says he wants to look into this whole shield thing because he's really like thinks it's a bad thing that they can't shield their stuff out in the desert. Yeah. Right. He's for him, it's a real problem. And so everybody keeps saying that like the shields are a problem in the desert, Mm -hmm. but like we never actually see the shields be a problem in the desert. Everybody's Mm -hmm. just sort of assuming. Yeah. And so like I'm, I've read when, as I was reading the book, I was wondering like, is this just like a, another, of course I'm just questioning everything. Right. Mm -hmm. Cause nothing is as it seems. Yeah. And so I'm wondering like, is this some sort of myth or lie that's been, Maybe sort of, maybe the Fremen spread this right. as a way or, to kind and, of equalize things, right? In a yeah. way to kind of exact. That was yeah. exactly my thought, and I, that may be wrong. It may be that the worms actually are attracted to the shields, mm. but um, anyway, it was a thought I had. You yeah. don't have to answer, but that was a thought. Yeah, I, had. I won't. But yeah, that's a good. I mean, so that's that's the reason. That's the reason why they have to use melee weapons um, for plot reasons. But it also it works because it enables you to have up close and personal confrontations between characters. I need that, right? Um, Battles are just more, they mean a little more. Now, there's there's conventional warfare as well. Spaceships blow each other up. Yeah, There's sure. some of that. Um, but uh, the shielding systems and it make it to where lasers and, I guess, high-speed projectiles are not effective. Um, so edged weapons are the order of the day. So everybody practices with edged weapons. And the Atreides are the best at it. With the potential exception of the Sardaukar, there seems to be some dispute, which may be part of the reason why the Emperor doesn't like it, because the Sardaukar are supposed to be super feared, and the Atreides are trained by the best, and um, 
and they serve out of loyalty to Leto rather than basically being forced into it through criminal criminal a criminal life and they're they're sent to this planet where they kind of have to adapt into this world to survive sure um better to be know. feared or loved sure kind yeah of thing. um and uh so the sardaukar are kind of anxious to prove that they're better than them the sardaukar in the movie are great well in, in the book they talk that the the atreides attribute all a lot of respect and fear to the sardaukar yeah right like it's a, it's a problem it's a like mm. yeah that the, when they when they and they're aware from the beginning that the mm. emperor's backing the harkonnens yeah and so they you know they're and so they expect the mm. sardaukar to make an appearance yeah and, and they even talk about like they're gonna come dressed as yeah harkonnens right they're mm-hmm. gonna come dressed as the enemy but they're not gonna be harkonnens and so we need to be ready for that and yeah. so um they're they're aware that, that they're gonna show up and there's a you know, there's a you feel a tonal shift when the Sardaukar are mentioned. It's like, you know, you're yeah. talking about, you know, the boogeyman, right? Yeah. Like it's mm-hmm. you know John Wick or something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that they're they're a formidable opponent. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's a it's a they're in a different league. Yeah, from the right. Harkonnen, which the Harkonnen themselves are a threat, but they man to man the Atreides are better. Right. Um, the Harkonnen come across as undisciplined. They're brutes. Um, they're kind of a mob. Um, the Sardaukar are highly trained, highly disciplined individually very dangerous uh it talks about how they're they're masters of covert assassination and they're clever with how they hide weapons and what they can use and so their their entire life is devoted to war and killing and death and they're the way that the visuals for their world and even the language yeah i would like to i did a little bit of research on this i didn't find much i would like to look into it about who came up with the language there it's helped with some special effects sure. like there's some there's some fiddling with it with right. the with the way that their voices are are done but i really like the language design um i was really intrigued by that the for those of you who've seen the movie the movie opens a little bit confusingly with the warner brothers water tower logo and there's a a subtext line and the audio is sardaukar language right and it says dreams are messages from the deep uh, which is, there's some theories about what that means um, in in the movie. Don't look for those theories if you're uh, trying to avoid spoilers. So just just let it play out. If you don't care, then you can whatever go to Reddit or whatever and look sure. for them. But um, anyway, so I love that language. I love the visuals. Now it's a monstrous, horrible place. Right. But in the book, I never thought of the Sardaukar as like morally evil. Mm. Um, I thought of them as highly efficient, driven probably driven to a fault uh, where they're obsessed with being the best fighters, but they have like uh, the, the way that they're portrayed in the movie, they're like a death cult. Right. And uh, they have what appears to be mass human sacrifice, um, which is not prominent. It's, it's kind of, it's, it's in the distance, but they're having blood drawn on their foreheads by like what appears to be like a priest kind of, kind of guy. And the blood we later see is drawn from like a mass human sacrifice. That's right. Yep. Where they, yep. they've been draining people's blood into like a giant base. Like a giant, yeah. And in, and the whole scene is horribly creepy. Their language is monstrous. There's like this bizarre throat singing, atonal chant going on in the background. It's a, it's a religious service of some kind. 
And there's a conversation between characters about like, you're going to come and help us kill the Atreides. And they're like, yeah, sure. Whatever the emperor says. Right. Um, but uh, that's your introduction to them. And so you're like, Ugh. yeah, right. Like you get it. You get like Orakai um, kind of vibes from yeah. like the, like these are, these are mm-hmm. bad dudes. Yeah. And they're, and they're in perfect row. Like they, there's so much presented to you and you just get them yeah. immediately. It's like, oh, this is like a really good army. And they are they are bloodthirsty monsters, right. but they're like they obey orders. They're going to do what they're supposed to do. So they make the appearance in the movie. Uh, they fight some. Um, they fight the Fremen some. They will they will continue to show up um, in the next and subsequent films. They come back a few times, but uh, um, I just like that. That's a, that's a good encapsulation for like how he brought a, a thing to life yeah. for me in that in, in that's in the book. And just exceeded my expectations. Yeah, that, no, um, he he did them very well. Mm-hmm. Um, l- let me let me shift the conversation if you don't mind. Um, I, one thing that I mentioned to my I watched the movie with my uh, two siblings, two of my brothers, and um, you know I told them as we we're getting ready to watch the movie. One of the things I really enjoyed about reading the book is I think Frank Herbert does people well. Yeah, he's really good at characters, character yeah. development. Um, how do you think the movie did? on the characters themselves. Um, is there, are there, well, let me ask the question differently. Mm-hmm. All right, are there any that you think he did exceptionally well? Are there any you think he fouled the pitch off of or did even poorly? Uh, I wouldn't say I, the, none of them stand out as being poor. There's a lot of them that are, are not given a lot of screen time. And I think that that was for filmmaking purposes wise. Um, you can't, you can't have 80 characters. Sure. Um, sure. if you're trying to do a two out, well, two hours and 30 minutes even. So he focuses on Jessica, Paul and Leto. And then you have kind of a second tier of characters where you have Duncan, Idaho, Gurney, Halleck, um, the Baron, um, and just a couple of others. And then there's like a third tier of characters that just kind of are like, Oh, I think that's the guy from the book. Like, right. you know, they don't, they're not really important, but they're around. They're not missing. Um, and I think that that was a good call. Yeah. Um, because yeah. if you try to do, if you try to give everybody equal screen time, then you, then nobody, it's nobody's story. Right. And it's, it's not, um, it's too, too unfocused and you can't, you don't know what's going on. And, and this was a movie that like, uh, you know, well, let me let's let me bounce the question back. Yeah, what yeah. do you think about that? Yeah, so I question. definitely agree with um, your assessment as far as from a movie making perspective, there are things that limit you, mm-hmm. um, and you have to make choices. And I thought the choices that he made um, when it came to giving characters screen time, how much screen time, what do you preserve from the book? I thought all of those choices were fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really did. Um, I will say the the one thing that was a, a letdown, and I, when I I try to I don't want to be too strong with it because like it definitely doesn't ruin the movie, it doesn't ruin the experience. Um, but I think I have a hard time picking my favorite character. No, um, but it is between two. Um, I really like the Duke. I really like yeah. Duke Leto, mm-hmm. and I really like Gurney Halleck. Yeah, and I thought I thought he, Gurney Halleck was not done right, that well. Right. Yeah. So I thought they nailed yeah. Duke Leto. I yeah. thought I thought I you know I'm I don't know um, Oscar you know Oscar Isaac Oscar yeah. Isaac's like mm-hmm. other outside of Star Wars right like yeah. I don't know you know I've not really seen him anything else. Um, you know, so when I heard he was playing Duke Leto, I hadn't read the book yet, so I didn't know anything about it. I was like, all right, well, Oscar's in another sci-fi sure. film, whatever. Um, 
And but then when I was reading Dune, and then of course I've got uh, Poe Dameron in my head as far as mm-hmm. you know. This is what this I'm like. He's Duke Leto's not Poe Dameron, yeah. right? Like he's, you know, I like I I got nervous, mm-hmm. and man, he just nailed it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I really, I really, he exceeded my expectations. Mm-hmm. I thought he was perfect, man. Yeah. Um, which to juxtapose that, I have nothing against Josh Brolin. Oh, right? good I think he's a good actor, mm-hmm. uh, but he was an odd choice for Gurney Halleck. Uh, because yeah. Gurney Halleck is Josh Brolin is super like grim. Yeah, yeah. It's and just Gurney very stoic. Halleck is so if you're a D and D guy, Gurney Halleck is a bard. He's a bard, right? He's um, a he's the warrior poet. Yeah, right. Like um, he's I, constantly fr- singing songs. Yes, and hymns, and he's quoting religious texts. Right, but he's he's got a smile. on he's his face. He's always got a smile on his face. He's marching to his death with a smile on his face. Right, and um. And Josh Brolin is very stoic. Stoic. Um, I think business. It's, it's almost like they reverse Duncan Idaho and Gurney Halleck, um, because I, I, Duncan Idaho isn't necessarily like grim, but he seems like a much more serious person. Right. And I'm wondering if that is. I'm wondering if they just miscast, because Jason Momoa. I like Jason Momoa, but yeah. he pretty much always plays Jason Momoa. Sure. And I think he could have probably pulled off Gurney Halleck. Halleck. I do too. I mean, they could have given him a, a ukulele or a whatever, a, you know, a lute or something. I can't sure. remember what instrument that he it's played. A, I think it's a balisset. It's a stringed it instrument of some It's like kind. got 10 strings. It's yeah. like a 10 string to balisset or something. Um, and then and then you have Josh Brolin playing like the grizzled veteran right. who's like the diehard uh, and that and but in the in yeah. So yeah, I forgot about that one, but that's one that I noticed where it was like no, no, Garney Halleck is supposed to play a song and like he, to I, make everybody cheer right. everybody up on the way to their death. You right. Know? That's that's kind of his role. And mm-hmm. and and you know, there are moments where Josh Brolin like he'll quote a religious text yeah. or he'll say something. Um there's that one scene, it's supposed to be his first war council. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's Paul's first and and um before the Duke enters, you know, he makes a comment like, you know, he's busting, you know, busting um hunter seeker droids and now he's you know in his first war council and you know and then he he does some sort of quote and he's got a smile on his face yeah so like it's there the quotes the the religious texts are there Mm. um but like gurney halleck is a warrior poet he's a bard like he's supposed to have some levity Mm -hmm. um he's supposed to bring levity and like he just doesn't in the film right it's he's very serious he's very business Mm -hmm. so for me again it's not like um, it doesn't ruin the film. I, I don't no, think it's awful. That's a pretty minor. Complaint. Yeah, it's a it's a minor thing, but it it did stand out to me as like, yeah, I think you f- you didn't strike out here, but I think you fouled the pitch off, mm-hmm. right? It's not you didn't put the ball in play. Yeah. Um. So, but juxtaposing that with Duke Leto, um, who's probably my second favorite character, you know, Oscar nailed it. So, sure. Um, the rest of them, I thought they were just really, really solid, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, Jessica's solid. Paul, yeah. um. Uh, my brother's gonna kill me because I can't remember his name. Timothy Chalamet. Thank you, yeah. Timothy Chalamet. Um, I think I think he's great. I think he's you know I've seen him in a few things. I think he's a he's an up and comer. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he's 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 got a, he's got acting chops. And he's like ten years younger than the the chick who played Jessica. <laughs> Is he really? I yeah, didn't even realize. Pretty that. close. I think it's ten or twelve or something like that. No kid. Kind of funny, but yeah. I, I mean, I th- I thought he did. Paul. Paul's a tough character. Yeah, I mean, it's a tough. He he. He's supposed to be 16, I think. 15, I 15, think. 15, yeah. yeah. And um, he looks a little older than that, but he's very slightly built. Sure. And so he can pull it off 
um, uh, kind of looking that age. And they never in the movie they never really they discuss really, it much. Yeah, he could be eighteen. Or, or like he could be fifteen, he could be nineteen, 20, he could be yeah. twenty three. Right. Yeah, so he's he's not you know, when we first meet him, he's clearly not playing a, an adult. He's right. under his parents' watch care. And so um and then as he goes throughout he, he has to assume the role not merely of man but Duke. Sure. And even though the house is largely wiped out, he doesn't have administrative duties to do, but he's like bearing the weight of the father's ring and I'm the Duke now. And it's up. It's like, I'm the end of the house. Like right. I've got to, sir, I've got to win this or it's, it's over the house of trades. And, uh, so it's on his shoulders. Um, and, uh, yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't have a whole lot of complaints about characters. Um, do you have a favorite from book or movie? Um, well, to be honest, uh, you know, I've, I've mentioned this before, but as the, as the book goes along, the first part of the book is mostly Jessica's perspective. Sure. And I like the, that part of the book better than the part of the book that is more Paul's perspective. And it's because Paul evolves and like becomes this sort of superhuman. And, um, and I don't think that that turns everyone off. So I, I don't, I don't think it's like, Oh, you're going to hate the next part. Um, but it's just something that I, I like better her character because she has she has agency, she has abilities, she's not a she's not along for the ride, mm-hmm. but she is not sure what's going to come next. She doesn't know she's fearful for her son and and for her unborn child, which we learn in the movie. Right. Um that she has one of those on the way. Um and sad about her husband's death, um sort of husband. And uh, just like everything that she's dealing with too, um, so I, I like I like the first part of the book is I kind of feel like is more her story mm-hmm. as the mother trying to like protect her child, and um, that's a that's a compelling story to me, and it it proceeds from there. But um, yeah, that's that's kind of my opinion. Yeah, I, I guess if I had to pick one, it would be her. You can't not like Leto. Um, I'm glad that the story is not about him because yeah. he's too good. He's sure. sort of a Mary Sue type, but he is, he serves a role yeah. and his death is supposed to be like the death of all good things. Right. And you, know? you get that when mm. you, when he goes, you I, I mean, I think most people would agree, uh, you know, you feel like, like this desert planet is awful. Mm-hmm. It takes everything that is good yeah. and grinds it to dust. Yeah. And if like, you have to become a Harkonnen, um, or even a Fremen mm-hmm. to survive this place. Yeah. Like, I don't know if it's worth the cost. Mm-hmm. Like if Duke Leto is the cost of surviving yeah. Arrakis, you know. Well, so that's up to you. You're about to finish the book and it's going to be up to you to decide if the way the book ends, the way that, which I assume they're going to continue on and make the sequels. Um, the way this films end, is it, is it going to be an ending that's, that's satisfying yeah. after the cost of the of the early ones, which means we'll be doing a part two. I we'll yeah, have to do a part at two. least. Yeah. Well, so, man, I don't know. We've we've covered themes. We've done yeah. some analysis. Talked about characters. You wanna you wanna wrap this one up? Yeah, we probably should. We probably should. We've been going for a while. There's a lot we could. There's a lot more we could say. Sure. This is a super nerdy book. It's very dense. It's full of all kinds of minutia that you could go into the movie as well. But um, so let's let's just. I guess it's time for the final judgment. So recommend the book. Uh, recommend the book. So far, with a caveat, I've not finished it. Okay. So recommend I recommend part one. 
Okay. I can say that. Yeah, I can say that for yeah. sure. I recommend the book, and I would recommend it on a couple of a, a couple of counts. One is because if you want to be a serious, if you want to be a serious <laughs> reader of sci-fi, which that sounds silly to say, but if you want to if you want to be well read in sci-fi and you want to know what good sci-fi looks like, you you really need to be at least exposed to Dune. You need to you need to read it. You may not yeah. it may not be your favorite. It might, but. Um, I mean, the odds are kind of in favor of it, of you liking it, just because a lot of people do. But even if you don't, you gotta kind of got to know it, got to sure. read it, or you're never going to be well-read in this genre. Recommend the book also because I like it, and I think it's just pretty good. Yeah. Um, it's complex. It may require more reading. I might, I might have to read it more than once, but um, it's it's not inscrutable. It's not... Um, it's not completely out there. One so. thing one thing I will add, we didn't talk about this and I know we're wrapping up, but pacing is also an issue, I think. Oh, okay. Um I wouldn't I don't I think the book paces okay decently. Mm-hmm. The movie also paces kind of weirdly too. But I think it's a because it's a product of the book. Um, well it's also the direction, right? Like we talked about uh how he likes his vistas and his right. big shots and so there's there's some shots that probably go on longer than they need to. And if you do that enough times, then you end up having a two hour and 35 minute movie. And, um, they could have probably sped them some things up. Yeah. But you know, the early part of the movie feels like it's going a hundred miles an hour. Sure. And then kind of after the fall of Atreides, you're like, what are they doing? Where are they going? Right. Um, and you know, having read it, I just, your brain fills in those gaps and you kind of know what's coming up and like they're making their way. Um, but the fact that, I mean, there could be something even there that's meta as well, where it's like, we want this part of the movie to feel directionless because that's what they are. Right. And, um, maybe, maybe that's there, or maybe it is just like, eh, we, I mean, it's just kind of like, we can't skip this. It's just kind of boring. Right. Um, so, but that I think is among general audiences who have I think pretty well liked it. That's one of the gripes is sure. that it's too slow in some places, and then the ending is too abrupt. But like, you got to end it somewhere, right? So, so book recommend, book recommend, movie, movie recommend. I have been told by some people that I know that this is the best book adaptation that has ever been done, and I don't agree. Yeah, I don't agree with that either. I think it's pretty good. It's good. Yeah, it's good. I I will say this about the movie. I have I came away from it I came immediately out of it thinking great film. Wow, mm-hmm. great film. Having had a couple of days since I've watched it, I have to admit I'm a little underwhelmed. Just not maybe, maybe it was oversold. Not yeah, but not yeah. because it's a bad film. Uh-huh. Right? It's a great film. I highly recommend yeah. to our audience. Like, I'll probably go, buy it. If you've not yeah, if you've yeah. not watched Dune, go watch it. Mm-hmm. Right? And when it comes out on DVD, buy it. Mm-hmm. It's great. It is a great film. I'm gonna want to see the sequels. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm I'm excited to see what comes next. But it was just so hyped for me, you know. Well, and the anticipation went on for a bazillion years. Yeah. I mean this this was supposed to come out in 2020. I don't remember what the actual release date was. It might have been November 2020. Wow, are we really that far past it? Backed up several times. Wow. And eventually, it made it to november or yeah november was that that's i don't remember what the actual date was or maybe it was october anyway it was it was fall 2021 the actual release date and so everybody all the nerds are excited about it and it gets backed up and backed up and back and it was ready to go but covid had the theaters closed right and they were like 
this is a spectacle. We need this to be in theaters. And they now it's released simultaneously on HBO Max. And there was a little bit of drama about that because a lot of these actors' contracts and, and directors' contracts are based on box office receipts, which you don't get from streaming services. So there's dispute about, like, well, how are you going to pay us if there's nobody buying tickets or right. if half the audience doesn't go because they're just sitting at home? And they may have worked that out, whatever. Um, but they clearly he wanted it to be a theatrical release. And um, so, yeah, that delay built the anticipation. Rumors were coming out that it was really good production, that he had control of it, that he was devoted to telling the story well. So there was just a lot of excitement. Yeah, and I would agree with all those things. Yeah, I would you know too. what I mean? I'm, yeah. I'm, I don't want to disparage those things. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> I agree with you in that but more than one person told me mm-hmm. this is the best adaptation for script v manuscript. Now they didn't say it this way, yeah. but like for script v manuscript, uh-huh. when you do this, you're gonna. This is gonna be the one, the one yeah. that all the other ones are gonna be compared to. Uh, and it's not that for me. I mean, it's, it's great. Lord it's, of the Rings is that. Yeah, sure. Um, Lord of the Rings is the best. It's the current reigning champ for yeah. best adaptation. Yes, and it is far from perfect. Right. 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 So we'll we'll, get, we'll do those eventually. Yeah. Um. We'll probably do. We'll probably do a two parter on that one at least. Sure. Um, we might should have done a two-parter for this one. I have no idea how long we've been going. I was going to say, it's been a while. <laughs> <laughs> Poor audience. So sorry. Um, if you've been listening to this on your ride to work for a week, I'm, I apologize. Uh, but thanks for hanging. Yeah. yeah. If I didn't get bored. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I'd recommend both, movie and book. I think they're both good. I'm looking forward to the sequels. Yeah. Um, I don't think that it's this is this is the, the end-all, be-all adaptation. It is the by a long shot, the best movie version that has been made so far of the ones that actually have been made sure. of the two. Um, so this is now the third one and the best one. And is it fair to say that it is a it is an absolutely refreshing um, piece of cinema? Yeah. In re- for, for, yeah. For movies that have been made in recent days. Yeah. Um, it's not the formulaic Marvel. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not... It's, there's nothing woke. I didn't get yeah. really any wokeness. I mean, the closest thing to it is that they gender swapped a character, right? And, and it, that to me, plays it was basically no role. No, um, yeah. Was, it, was probably, it was kind of pointless that they did it, but I didn't. It didn't affect anything didn't affect much. Anything. So uh, you're not going to get a lot. Of, if you're if you're into that and you're hoping for that, then you're going to be disappointed by this film, right? Um, because it's it's just not present. But you know, frankly, when Herbert wrote it. Um, he wrote it with like female characters in it. Uh, I don't know. There's just a lot of stuff that ostensibly the woke crowd likes that's sure. kind of already present. Yeah, so it's hard. Really, it's hard to. It's hard to woke it. it. Yeah. It's you know because um, you can't really be like, well, it's not diverse enough. Well, yeah, it is. Right. Um, Super diverse. Like it has all the things that women that, play a prominent role. Yeah. You know. Anyway. Um, so. Yeah, it just to yeah. me refreshing. An excellent reminder that not every single thing that comes out of Hollywood is trash. Sure. Right? That that yeah. there is there are still writers, producers, actors, craftspeople, craftspeople um, who are interested in telling good yeah. stories, um, being you know treating source material with dignity and respect, mm-hmm. um, giving uh, taking credence, pride in their work, taking pride in their work, giving yeah. credence to the audience that it is intended for, mm-hmm. allowing them. To be the focus and yeah. not some focus group mm-hmm. of what of yeah, there's not wokesters. a committee. There's not a committee at the studio right. telling them everything. That to me, uh, to me, if if those are the take most positive takeaways from this, then mm-hmm. I'm I'm happy. Yeah, and if you're if you have not read the book or if you're not a nerd, um, there there's a chance that you'll get overwhelmed by how closely this adheres to the book. Mm-hmm. Um, 
just because it 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 does like it's very close to the book and so there's there's a lot of references to these factions that you've heard us talking about if you don't care about that you don't want anything to do with that you're just going to kind of have to let that go in one ear and out the other right and just sort of roll with it um, if you're a nerd, you're going to love that stuff. You're going to be like, oh, there they are. I remember them in the book. Sure. Um, but you're, you're, um, if you're not into that, then that could be a potential turnoff. But uh, frankly, it's a coherent story regardless. And saw it with my wife who has not read the book and she was able to follow it. No yeah. problem. So uh, I think it's, I think it's probably pretty good for most, most audiences. Yeah. So Dune. Dune. Go see it. Yeah. Go read it. And then uh, now it's time for us to do our sign-out things. So uh, we are Script V Manuscript. You can uh, email us at scriptvmanuscript at gmail.com if you want uh, to send us anything. You can probably comment on this podcast. Still haven't figured out that if you can or not. But if you can, do it. And I'm sure I'll get a notification. Um, so that's a good way to get in touch with us. Um, check out Servant and Herald. Um, go just, uh, just look around for that. We will, uh, I don't think the website's live for that yet at the time of this recording. So we will update uh, with that, but this is going to be a part of a network of people who are content creators of various kinds. We're trying to, uh, just create a space online for folks to, um, really just, oh gosh, it's going to be kind of hard to define what we're trying to do. Um, but check it out. Just go there and find out what we're yeah. doing. Servant and Herald. We'll, we'll probably come back posthumously and, and put the, uh, contact info for that. Um, it's kind of be kind of a blog type situation, but this is part of a network of folks who are doing things affiliated with that organization, that group, very loosely knit group. But um, check that out. Check out our, our sister podcast, Pop Culture Quorum Deo, for more talk about movies. They don't do books except for the episodes where Jeff has me come on <laughs> and I force him to read the book and also talk about it. Um, but I got to give him credit because that's where I got the idea for this thing. So you can blame him for that. Uh, anything for closing? Uh, well, I mean, if you need to go pick up a copy of Dune and you're in Cookville, oh sure, yeah, go hit up Walls of Books, yeah, or Mountain Juliet, or, Mountain or Juliet. just look around. If you you could be close to a Walls of Books near you, one that I don't own, but uh, all the owners are good folks. So check it out. See if and you can find a local independently owned bookstore to get a copy of Dune yes, from. Do that. For sure. And if you're really into Dune and you're looking to kick back on a Saturday afternoon, got to come to the table in Cookville. We Do you have, have a Dune game? I have two Dune games. Yeah. One of them, I haven't learned it yet, uh, but my brother did after yeah. watching the movie. He says, amazing. So, well, I've so gotta, there's a lot of board games based on Dune, I would think. Yeah. But, well, um, most of the time, board games based on franchises like Dune are soulless cash grabs. Yeah. But apparently this one is worth playing so. well this has probably been around long before the movie sure so yeah, it's not sure. like a, it's not like a ooh. we'll right. just you know we'll just flush one out real right. quick this is yeah yeah it's, apparently it's well thought out it's great so mm. uh table in cookville come play that yeah the table it's one of the coolest places in cookville to hang out um all right that's all we got i think oh, yeah. so we will be back again for another episode i hope unless something catastrophic happens <laughs> uh and next time you know, I want to put you on the spot. What are we going to do next time? What uh, do you want to do next? Should we should we branch out or should we do something familiar? Uh, I don't know. Your choice. Let's do. I'll let you, you know, pick. Okay, so right now we have not discussed this. So yeah. Let you so pick. you put me on the spot. My pick. This this may not be what we do next time. But my pick is let's do. I'm, I'm in, we're in the sci-fi thing, and I'm kind of in a horror mood. Okay. Let's do the thing. All right. Let's do the thing. I'll, we'll do the thing. All right. I, I can get behind that. All right. Let's do that. 
All right. Well, we're going to sign off for tonight. I'm Terry. I'm Joe. And we are Script V Manuscript. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.